I'm Nolan. I'm Shanae. I'm Marius. I'm Kay. I'm Kat. I'm Justin. And, and this, this is Comicsverse. You're listening to a brand new episode of the Comics First podcast, where we are proud to say we just surpassed 300,000 plays on our last episode, the Rick Remender interview. And I think one of the things we do well here is balance having a good time with having some deeper conversations about digging deep into who these characters are and what they're about. And it's no secret that I and many people who work here, we might be on the left-leaning side of things, you could say. Nolan being an anarchist, Marius being an eco-terrorist, Oh, come on. <laughs> Just kidding. But, you know, we're open to everyone. I'm sure there's a Republican or two who works here. There probably isn't. I'm just lying. <laughs> we may be left on some on certain political themes, but I can definitely say most of us here in the bubble of New York City were shocked by last November's presidential election results when Donald Trump, with the help of FBI Director Comey and Vladimir Putin, won the path to the presidency of the United States. So it's no secret that despite a majority of white women in the USA voting for him, Donald Trump is hardly a bastion of feminism. I wrote, and I had to look up bastion. I wasn't sure what it meant. And I came to him in my head, but I was like, do I know what this means? I wasn't sure, but I was right. Bastion of feminism. He is not. But while many people on the left and right of American politics have serious reservations about Hillary Clinton, it's my personal belief that the last election exposed a messy truth about the United States and possibly most of Western civilization, which is that women, despite not being a minority in numbers, are likely the most discriminated against and most forgotten minority. And I use that term in quotes due to the numbers that I mentioned before. So in the interest of wanting to do something positive for a community that frankly helped raise me, my mother was and is one of the biggest parts of my life, and we'll soon find out how our panel feels here about similar things. I thought it was prime time to discuss some of our favorite female characters in X-Men, which was one of our favorite comics to discuss and gave me the idea for doing this podcast about celebrating the women of X-Men. So before I introduce my lovely panel, this is a reminder to check out comicsfirst.com. I can honestly say our site has morphed so much more lately into a more political and political being, which is something we've gotten a lot of flack for and someone else who I'm not going to mention. But I think it's important we work hard not to normalize discrimination towards any group. So do please check us out on comicsfirst.com. We also just developed a weekly comics news show where you can get your comic book news once a week. You can see that on our site as well, on YouTube. Follow us on all the social media, but most important, comicsfirst.com. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce my guest for the 87th episode of the Comics First podcast. And first up, we have all the way from Germany, Marius Thienenkampf. Hey, Justin. Thank you. I think that it should be a Congress drinking game where, depending on how I say your last name, people should do that amount of heroin or not. <laughs> oh, no. But, but yeah, no. <laughs> you've, you've, gotten, you've gotten really, really good at it, though. Thank you. Well, you were here this summer for, to help me practice my German, and you definitely did. Right. I mean, <laughs> kind of, I guess. <laughs> okay, so serious question. What woman is the most important to you in your life at the moment? And could you name a female that you greatly respect out in the world, maybe historically, and uh, they could totally be the same person? I'm not sure I can narrow that down to, like, one person, but I think, like, the four females that I always thought were, like, really important to me personally and, uh, like, some of the strongest and most influential people in my life are my mother, my grandma, and my two female best friends. So, yeah. That's awesome. So Kay, image section head, and goddess of the pencil, as I say, because you're an amazing artist. 
Oh, God. You can find your webcomics on comicsforce.com, of course. Welcome, Kay. Thank you, Justin. Good to see everyone. Good to see you, too. So, listen, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Marius. Sure. So, like, influential women in my life, or... Yeah, who's an influential woman in your life that you really respect, and maybe one out in the world? Okay. Um. Well... I mean, it's it's a cheesy answer, and it kind of co-signs what Marys was saying, but definitely my mother, just because we don't agree about everything, and she's flawed in her own way, but she definitely instilled this idea of trying really hard. And another cheesy answer is that I think that despite all of her flaws and despite many mistakes and many things I don't agree with, Hillary Clinton, I do respect her for what she's been trying to do, even if she hasn't been, you know, a perfect icon for feminism or like not even feminism, just a perfect icon in any way, because she has made mistakes and she has done not so popular things, but she still tries. And I respect that. Nolan, welcome back. Thanks. I'm sad I'm not gonna be able to see you for two months as I'm in Utah. I'll see you right when you get back. That would be I would love that. So how about you? you would you like to answer those two questions? Um, sure. I mean, uh, obviously, I think my mother and my sister play a larger role in my life than any given public figure. But as far as like an influential woman right now, you know, a classmate and I last night were talking about Naomi Klein. And it really struck me how influential she is in like leftist thought in the United States. Like she just put out a really good article about like the left and Trump in the nation. And it kind of like demonstrates her position as a voice that really like speaks to a lot of different groups. Though we were criticizing progressivism for its connection to Teddy Roosevelt and imperialism that it kind of struck us that like if Naomi Klein is cool with progressives, then we're cool with progressives too. Awesome. Yeah, I just want to throw out Harriet Tubman's name out there because I'm a huge Harriet Tubman fan. Whenever there's someone who I really like in history, I'm like, Justin, stop personality worshiping people as I have done my whole life with historical figures. But to me, she's just like a true and true good person and one of the bravest people that I've ever read about. So I really like her. But unfortunately, Jamie couldn't be here today as she's usually here to discuss X-Men podcasts. And I definitely have a tear for that. But we have two new X-Men lady podcasters who recently joined Comics First and who are here to talk about their favorite women of the X-Men. First up, we have Shanae. Shanae, welcome. Hi, Justin. How are you doing? I am doing great. How about you? Pretty good. A little nervous. I was just going to ask, are you nervous? Yeah. Oh, don't be nervous. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> if only you knew the things that I've said on this podcast. Um, if you look at Marius's face, yes. he's not laughing, but he's... Offensive stuff. Yeah, he's worried. So you can't do anything worse than what I've ever done. And Nolan has had a few moments as well. Let's not talk about them. <laughs> yeah. We have other things to <laughs> discuss. Each one of us has had a meltdown once. Yeah. yeah. It happens. Yeah. And we yeah. don't judge. We don't judge here. Okay. So, Shanae, who's a female in your life who means a lot to you and maybe one out in the world that inspires you? I'm going to join the bandwagon with my mother, mostly because she was kind of like the cheerleader in the background that would also give you a lot of flack for not being yourself. Right. And during high school, whenever I had an issue or if I was trying to be something that I wasn't, she kind of like would smack me upside the head and be like, no, like don't try to be a popular girl. Be a nerd. <laughs> I don't care. At least you're not doing drugs. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know, my father was like, Justin, you should go out and smoke some pot. He's like, because I can tell you're not very popular. He literally told me that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm not kidding. And your dad was a cop, and he said He was that. a detective, <laughs> a first grade detective. He was like, listen, go out and get in some 
trouble. He's like, because this choir is not cutting it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he's like, you're embarrassing all of us. He didn't say that, but he meant it. Sorry. So um, your mother. <laughs> and as far as influential, I don't remember the last name of this YouTuber, but her name is uh, her YouTube name is Shameless Maya. I like her because she coined not coins, but she identified the term shameless and she decided to live her life as shamelessly as possible. And she promoted herself as a brand in a way. And she went from making a few little videos on YouTube to becoming a professional videographer to actually creating her own business with her own team in LA. Oh, and awesome. she's been to a lot of beauty cons, curl festivals, and other festivals as well. And even hosting a couple of awards. So I adore and aspire to be like her to be able to be shameless. Yeah, I think that that's really important because I think that our culture and many cultures in general can kind of inspire us to be more shameful than we need to be, right? Cat. Mm -hmm. Hello. Marvel Comics section editor. Really awesome person who got me and Marius interviews with Dennis Hopeless and Cena Grace, who Kay actually interviewed Cena Grace. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So thank you very much for that. How are you liking being Marvel section head so far? I love it a lot so far. I'm having a lot of fun. Everybody is so enthusiastic and helpful. So I just, I have a lot of fun doing this. It's probably my favorite thing that I do with my time. Oh, awesome. Oh, I love <laughs> hearing that. That's really cool. Um, and I hope that never changes, <laughs> um, especially not after this podcast. So, and how do you feel about this being your first podcast, by the way? Oh, I was, um, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm actually really nervous. Um, I've been preparing for this all week. Got my Aww. microphone set up. I'm super excited though. Oh, I know that's so cute. You're in Shanae. We're, we're, our hearts are going out to you. Remember, do you guys remember that nervousness that we had when we first started? Absolutely. No, I was yes. drunk. I think <laughs> I'm always nervous though. So. Yeah, I'm always nervous too. Um, so, what about you? Like, who's a female that is a strong presence in your life, and who's one out in the world that inspires you? So we all picked our moms, and I'm also going to pick my mom. <laughs> Um, my mom is, she's really my hero and I really see her as a superhero because she does a lot of work for the Hispanic community in my area. Cool. She's the coordinator for an organization that provides outreach to Hispanic immigrants with children. She does victim advocacy for Hispanic immigrants who have been victims of crime and can't do anything about it. And she's also in the process of opening an immigration clinic, all of which I think is hugely important today with the state of things. So I think she's changing a lot of lives, and she's really modest about it. That's but so cool. I see you, Mom, and I appreciate it. She is it. a modern-day superhero. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Yeah. So did we mention one out in the world? Your mom is kind of both, because your mom is inspiring to you personally, and she's, your mom inspires me from that story. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. She. I really want to be a lot like my mom. That's really cool. Yeah, I love that. I, I am a lot like my mom, but I'm not sure in the good ways. <laughs> I'm a lot like my mom, I think. Are you? Yeah, I have the same taste in TV shows and books mostly, you know. Yeah. I asked my mom, I was like, you know, the Six Feet Under season finale was like really moving to me. I'm like, would you watch it with me? And she was like, go f yourself. And I was like, all right, mom. Yeah. I have an honorable mention for women that are influential right now. Oh, who? Samantha B. I know she's a comedian, but I, I think Samantha she's amazing. B. And I think she's hilarious. And she's so important because she's able to shed light in a very dark time for women in any marginalized group and she still can make me laugh and she also has a segment where she reads hate mail and she just laughs it off and it's the most empowering thing because people hate on her all the time like as a job like people hate on her and she still finds a way to make people laugh and make herself laugh i say you know i've been watching chelsea handler's show on netflix and i was never a big fan of hers on e um but her show on netflix is like really political and i, and I kind of like that yeah, dude. Tough women out there. 
Speaking of tough women, let's get into the thick of it. Who who do who do you guys vote? We should talk about first. So our options are Jean Grey, Emma Frost, Mystique, Kitty Pride, Storm, or Rogue. I say Shanae and Kat should figure out who we should talk about first because you guys are the oh are the man, the pressure's on. Yeah. Well, my personal two votes are Kitty Pride and Emma Frost. I'm yes. with you on. I'm with you on half that. Shanae, how about you? My personal two votes are. Ro- no, Mystique and Storm. Oh, damn. <laughs> now we need a tiebreaker. All different characters. <laughs> um, hey, you should be the tiebreaker. Ooh, that's, yeah, no, those are tough. Like, if you put it that way. Oh, man. Like, do I have to choose one from what they... Yeah, you have to choose from what they what they pick. Uh, that's so hard. Uh, it was Storm, Mystique, Emma Frost, or... Rogue. Kitty Pride. yes? Uh, oh, wait, Rogue? No, she... Um, Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride. Yeah, Kitty Pride. Uh, I think Kitty Pride is a good Woo! starter. That's a good start, yeah. Let's do it. Because Storm, because Storm and Mystique are such big characters. Not that Kitty Pride isn't, but she's she a is. good warm-up character. And I know you love Emma like I do, so I think that was really nice of you to save Emma for later and to put Kitty up first for, for of the new. Of course, <laughs> of course, we're putting Emma later. Of course, right? Um, you can't, you can't have Emma Frost for appetizers. You need to have her for dessert. That, I, and I don't mean that in a yeah, sexual way at all. It's a good way to put it. Yeah, I, I mean that in the most non-sexual way I could ever mean that. <laughs> um, Marius, why did you pick Kitty? I think I did pick Kitty because she's not only like one of my uh, favorite female characters in fiction, but probably one of my favorite characters in fiction, period. Why? Why is that? I always found it like interesting to not necessarily relate to her, but like... Uh, I think the experience for many people being introduced to her in the late 70s, early 80s was like growing up with her. And she's also very intelligent and easy to like. She gets along with people. She's uh, friendly, a badass, but she's not not always a warrior. So I like that. She has pacifist moments. Yes. Um, Kat, how about you? You also picked Kitty. Yes, Kitty Pride is one of my favorite characters. I um, well, I got into X Men when I was like eleven years old, and I started watching X Men Evolution, and Ooh, Kitty Pride yeah. was a character mm-hmm. on there. So she really resonated with me because I was so young. Um, and she she is a total badass. She's joined the X Men when she was thirteen and a half years old in the comics. She's gone against Emma Frost. She kind of led the fight in God Loves Man Kills, which was mm-hmm. totally badass because she was still just a kid there. And yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, Kitty is awesome. And I think it's interesting that you guys have this relationship with her. Because when I was like seven and I read her, um, I was like, why are they in a malt shop in Dark Phoenix Saga? And I didn't (laughs) connect with her. I didn't really connect with people who I felt were my age until like Generation X. Mm. Because they were so moody. Yeah, they were like, yeah, because they were like, you know, sad and fat. And so was I. Being plucky and like, (laughs) you know, like go get it. Yeah, I just, I wanted superpowers so bad when I was watching and reading X Men. So I just related to Kitty so much. I was like, I could do that. Like Marius was saying, she's not just, she's not always kind of like a brawly type. She uses her brains. She's really smart. She's really witty. And she's really good with computers. And I think those are all really cool things about her. I feel like she's a great role model, too. Yeah. Yes, she is. I mean, she ends up being president yeah yeah, 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 yeah. One time she does, so yeah. like i'm like yeah of course she is she kicks ass but that's yeah, the thing like i feel like that's probably why i didn't choose her she's like um before hermione was hermione and harry potter like she's a likable female protagonist that's 
tough, that's smart, that's likable, and you kind of want to be her and she's a good role model. She's kind of like the Beyonce of the X-Men in the sense that like she's more of an accessible. So I maybe like that's the reason why. Like it's not that she's perfect or a goody two-shoes or anything. It's just that her character's so like already well-rounded. And I like a little damage on my character. <laughs> I, re- I really like that you brought up like the time on which she, she becomes president of the United States, which is like the X-Men, the end timeline. Because in that storyline, she has a conversation with Charles before like the X-Men's final battle. And she's not actually in the battle because what she does is she's trying to win the election, basically. And I really like that about the character that Charles would trust her enough to make her sort of the embodiment of his dream in that timeline because Mm -hmm. most of the qualities that are associated with like the concept of Xavier's dream she embodies and I like that about her and I mean she probably embodies that better than Xavier himself because I mean we talked about this on many podcasts Xavier has done some really questionable it's like amazing to think about how many times he's given that leadership role to other people or like other students of his and he's still trusted Kitty with this Kind that's of like a great point. Generation. Yes. And I think that's really important. So that's a good point. I wonder, because when I was a kid, when I was like 11 and I was reading comics a lot, I did not know who Kitty Pride was. And I wonder, why is that? Was she not in Age of Apocalypse at all? No, she was in Excalibur back then. Excalibur. No, and she so, wasn't in Age of Apocalypse. She was with was Peter. Yeah, she was. She was she, with Peter. With Peter Rasputin? Yeah, she was just a much darker version. Uh, I don't remember yes. her from that. Or from the like sequence of events in which sentinels could take on human form and disguise themselves as humans. That was like later after she Onslaught, was in New, maybe. Remember because she transferred to New Mutants. She was like the senior member of to, New Mutants, basically, yeah. right? Like the veteran within the New Mutants. Right. But I only read that stuff like uh, recently, you know? Right. Like when I was a kid, I really, she did not... Shadow Cat, Kitty Pride. I was like, who's that? Yeah, but that's you know? probably why you missed her as a kid because she was in New Mutants. I guess so, yeah. yeah. I'm going to open this up to everybody. What do you think makes Kitty a narratively significant character? I think it's necessary. Well, I mean, again... To reiterate, we have a lot of X-Men podcasts. We read a lot of X-Men comics. There's so many out there. And, you know, in short, it's flamboyant. It's a lot of, like, flamboyant personalities, a lot of strong personalities, a lot of dramatic personalities. And not to say that Kitty isn't a dramatic or strong personality, but she's kind of the most down-to-earth or the most pragmatic at times. Like, when even when Cyclops is being all emotional, she's like, okay, but, like, we have stuff to do and like our students are in danger or our team is in danger we should probably go do something about that okay cool bye so like it's nice to have you know someone who i guess like it sounds like negative to put it this way but she's reliable and like i think you always need a character like that who's just reliable and you're always going to have her be there because she's like a good friend Joss Whedon described her as the every man the every the every woman the every man yes that's a perfect way to describe it yes From a narrative perspective, if Kitty Pryde is the everyday woman, I think that that's actually a good thing to have for young adults and children, and even any reader alike, because one of the best things as an author or a writer or a reader is to have that character that is pretty grounded, that is essentially like the reader themselves. And believe it or not, the reader actually has a stronger connection because she is so grounded. I think her like regular person kind of quality is it's uh it very much resembles something that like writers hope sidekicks will be 
and that they all too often don't feel like they feel a little bit pathetic or maybe too comic or something but like I feel like it's the exact same role the sidekick is supposed to play that and that Claremont did it well when he introduced her to like set her up in this role as like not too much older than the reading audience uh, average age having some of the same kind of flaws that they and their peers have not having powers that are too far like you know not too far out there and um being relatable you know i do love how um she becomes wolverine's protege and then establishes wolverine with like a long line of having like young teenage trainees we see armor later in astonishing x-men jubilee jubilee oh my gosh yes Um, x-23 yeah he's a very good mentor yeah he's a great mentor yeah. yeah So what do you think is Kitty culturally significant at all? And I'd like to just point out, as I asked that question, that Joss Whedon based the character of Buffy Summers from Buffy the Vampire Slayer on Kitty Pride. That makes sense. Yeah, I did not know that. Um, I do think Kitty is culturally significant. You can tell from the very first panel that you meet her that she's Jewish because she wears the Star of David. Mm. And that is a part of who she is. Themes like that, I mean, God Loves Man Kills um, is one of my favorite X-Men stories. And it's so poignant even to this day she attacks somebody because he kind of speaks he has this hate speech and she's somebody that advocates against that i think it was back in 2012 when alex summers the brother of scott summers havoc held his uh, m-word speech in mm-hmm. uncanny avengers i think it was uncanny avengers 5 it was pretty controversial by that time because it, essentially what he was saying is that oh he doesn't self-identify as a mutant really but rather like as a person and he doesn't want to be referred to as a mutant. This really great page in uh, Brian Bendis' All-New X-Men where Kitty kind of responds to that, and we kind of get her perspective about being discriminated against because she's Jewish in her childhood and what she learned out of that. And basically what she's saying is, no, of course, I'm not going to hide any of that. I'm, I'm going to be proud of my cultural heritage, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think she's very much culturally significant. So when we try to break down a character and the three-dimensionality of a character, I always go back to Susan Batson's Truth, which is a book on method acting. And I think it applies to writers and stuff too and, and, and how to create a three-dimensional character. The, the three dimensions that she talks about are public persona, which is how a person likes to be perceived, need, which is something requisite for that organism, in fact, she says, in order to survive, and then the tragic flaw. So why don't we get what we need? And there's something, there's a flaw in us that prevents that from happening. I thought we could take a look at Kitty and, and come up with those things. And just so, for the new people and for the new people listening, if you haven't heard about this, the way we decide, or the way, what helps us determine the need is we can look at the public persona and often think about what the opposite of that is. So would anyone like to start, like, what is Kitty's public persona? How does she want to be perceived to the world? Strong and fair. I would say brave, too. Yes. Kind of rebellious. She wants to perceive, like, not even be perceived as a hero. She just wants to be perceived as someone who's doing the right thing. Right. But not in a cyclops. To her friends and uh, fellow mutants. I always think of that scene in Astonishing Exxon with her and Colossus where she's like, I'm here for the work and all this stuff. And even though she like really mm-hmm. is falling for him and she wants to be taken seriously. Yeah. Yes. And for me, when I think of that, the, the need pops up into my head pretty quickly of what that could be. Does anyone want to talk about it first before I do? No. What is it? I think Kitty Pride is scared shitless. Mm-hmm. I think that 
beneath all of this is still that 13 and a half year old girl who's running away from that car that Jean Grey stops and, and kills those Hellfire Club people because she was literally dropped into this. You know, and, and I yep. think from that moment on, her life was never the same. And I think that she feels a lot of fear. What I love about that is the way that she deals with that fear is so mature and so healthy. And she does right. it by being brave. I, I'm not sure I think she's scared all the time. But I do think that she has, kind of has this fear of not being perceived as an adult and like a regular team member, but still as the 13-year-old, if that makes sense. We have a lot of other characters making fun of her because of her silly costumes and new superhero names. Uh, we get that from Emma a lot. So I think she might have this fear of not being taken seriously by some of the other team members. Which I mean, eventually, like at least in that one timeline, she does get taken very seriously as like the president of the United States. But it's interesting. I would, I would agree. I also want to stop myself. I don't think that the fact that she's scared is necessarily her need. But I think like maybe right. her need is to be protected. Yeah. I don't know. I think her need is to be respected, respected. and not patronized. Okay. I feel like if she wanted to be, if her need was that she wanted to be protected, she would put herself in situations where she needed to be saved. Like, yeah, she gets help from her team members, but there's never a point where you're like, well, Kitty, you kind of up. Or like, I don't know. I just feel like she just wants respect and doesn't want to be patronized and wants to be seen as an adult. I agree. I think a lot of the times she is patronized for being one of the younger members of the X-Men, but she has been in a lot of leadership roles. Um, what particularly comes to mind is all new X-Men when she sort of takes over as headmistress for Charles Xavier and she's leading the time displaced X-Men. And she totally kicks young Iceman's ass a couple times just because she's the boss and she wants them to respect her. But I wonder if this crosses into the tragic flaw a little bit. Like, what if, is her tragic flaw that she's so stubborn that she wouldn't ask for help, that she wouldn't ask for protection when she's scared? Probably. And isn't she just so well-adjusted that she's just so brave and deals with it that way? Because isn't her tragic flaw the reason why she wound up in that bullet in Astonishing X-Men? Do you feel that it was something unique to her character that got her into the bullet and not, other than her powers, you know, that they needed to send her into that, onto that mission, you know? Correct me if I'm wrong, but she seemed to really want to take that initiative to go and do it. I would pretty much agree because that's kind of what got her into the situation where in the beginning of the book, she would find Colossus instead of the rest of the X-Men. And then we got some internal monologue later on where she's like, well, I did find him, not the other X-Men. So she seems pretty proud of that initiative, I guess. But also when it comes to the book's finale and the bullet, I think it's her righteousness that let her do that. She's, I've, mm, for me, she's always word. been yeah. a really righteous character. It's not just her powers. It's uh, without any aspect of personality with them. It's like that because she has those powers, she had the ability to sacrifice herself. So she did, you know, like. Right. So we have kind of two needs working here. A two-pronged inspiration, if you will. A double rainbow, as my script analysis professor at Columbia called it without realizing what she was referencing in YouTube. But let's take Kay's uh, respect need, right? And we, just now we're talking about the tragic flaw, but do you think there's another jam up there? Is there something else that prevents her from being respected? She's stubborn. She wants to do it her way. And like Mary's was saying, she is a righteous person. So she has a very strong idea of what, good is and what morally bad is so i think that to her where she kind of falls short is that like she will not tolerate any deviance from that sometimes and will be like no guys like we're not trusting this person because 
she was awful or, you know, like not that she's unforgiving, but she like is very stubborn about things like that. And she's not willing to move on that, at least not easily. Isn't that why we love her, though? Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, a great example for what Kay was saying is uh, a scene later on in Astonishing X-Men where she's really, well, stubborn and hellbent on saving her team. And she gets into a conflict with Agent Brand of sort. And basically, she's not really being taken serious by her, at, at, well, in the first moment, because... Up to that point, she's always presented herself as kind of this pacifist, righteous character. So that kind of plays into why people like Agent Brand wouldn't take her seriously at first, although she can be a badass. How does Kitty Pride celebrate being a female, celebrate her femininity? She's kind of like un uh, self-conscious, I would say, in Dark Phoenix Saga. Like it's yeah. this very positive portrayal of tween to adolescent age, you know, compared to many that we've seen and but maybe she's our, so own, brave our in that. own experiences. Like she's, she's very... like the classic quote unquote tomboy type. Yeah, she's but just like but it's confident. not but that's even even that is reductive though to say that. But if you had to like narrow it down, she has like this very like I don't even want to say masculine. She just like owns herself and just is like when she owns her femininity, it's nothing. It's not like culturally understood femininity, but it's not necessarily masculinity either. It's not androgyny. She just kind of is. For sure. She's just kitty, like being her. I, I love, um, and I'm, I'm going to turn over to you in a second, Marius. Uh, in Dark Phoenix Saga, when she tries to rescue them from the cages and then she gets shot with that blast from one of those Hellfire dudes and Wolverine's like, whoa, dude, I'm going to kill you and <laughs> he does but it was much more eloquent than that marius what were you gonna say i was gonna say that in terms of celebrating her femininity i'm not sure if it's ever like explicitly stated or if, she, if there's any scene where she would get into that but i feel like from what we can tell about the character i feel like she would feel similarly uh, about this like she does feel about being jewish or being a mutant i feel like she owns it I just love that she's she's not fearless. She's brave because she is scared and she works through that. And I just think, yes. talk about a role model. I mean, that's something to me mm -hmm. is a really role right. model. Sinead, do you have something to say? I was going to point out that the fact that she doesn't have a traditional tell of femininity is actually a pretty good thing because in terms of being a role model, it shows that she's depicting that there's more than one way to be a girl and to girls that have a lot of characters that go with the traditional forms of femininity with caring about their appearance, who they're dating, worrying too much about the future. It's showing that there's more than one way to be a girl. And then by that definition, more than one way to be a person. I love that. Yes. I love that. Yeah. I would clap if, yes. if one of my hands was holding this mic. Yeah. <laughs> that was really, that was very well said. Thank you. Clap. All right. Let's go down the line. Favorite kick-ass Kitty Pride moment. My favorite kick-ass moment, just because I love... Anything to do with Emma, but also, well, I don't know. I forget which storyline it was in, but it was like right after. It was astonishing. Um, I know exactly what you're going to say. It's when like Emma Frost is like, oh, I'm on the good side now. And Kitty's like, no, like, get out of here. Who are you? You like caged us. I hate you. Like she was like the last one to like trust her or like give anything away. She was like, no, dude, like you can't just like walk in here and like tell us what to do or like help us. Like you have no like just. No, I really like Kitty around that. And like that's continued, that relationship continued to be tenuous for a while. And I really like that because even though it is stubborn and I, even though I love Emma, like I think that Kitty st stood by her, like, you know, yeah. stood by her conviction. 
really like that about her. She was like, bitch, you put me in a cage. You don't just get over that with I'm sorry. Yeah, really. Though. That's what she said? No, but that's that was the subtext. Oh, yeah. Okay. If someone put me in a cage, like, oh, sorry, you know, I was just really a villain then. I didn't mean to put you in a cage and starve you and try to kill you. I would be like, fuck you. No? That's when she was like killing her own guards for like fun and laughing, you know, like and we're gonna super get into duper second, villain. And we're going to get into this in a second, but just the, you know, I just want to point out that the new Harambe is Butter Rum from Firestar. I'm just pointing that out. Oh, uh, that was I so know. Sad. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay, uh, <laughs> that was one of my favorite ones, too. All right, who else? Okay, favorite kick ass Kitty Pride moment, Kat. My favorite Kitty Pride moment is also from Astonishing X-Men. It's after she finds out that Emma Frost has sort of been working with the Hellfire Club and Kitty kicks Emma's ass and she oh, like squeezes yes. her fist through the wall and punches her and then she throws Emma underground and she says, now think about what you've done and just floats away. Yes. Loved it. That was badass too. Who, who wants to go next? I, like I said, I don't know Kitty Pride too well. So the few times I've seen her is really in the movies. Right. So I suppose my favorite kick-ass moment is when she dupes the juggernaut into chasing her and the, I believe it's the nullifying mutant that she has tagging along with her. Mm -hmm. Into running into the wall and he kind of knocks himself out. Yeah, she calls him an Mm asshole. Yeah, I like that. The guy we have bleeps now. No one would have you. Ellen Page was such a good choice for that too. Yeah, I know. She was a a perfect kid. Yes. Uh, I think... I would choose something from Astonishing X-Men that's kind of the opposite of Well, what? we all chose Astonishing X-Men. Well, but it, this is like a way different from moment from what Kay and Kat chose, like right at, right when she's inside that bullet, you know, and she and Emma are like the last people to exchange words with each other, like before she dies, essentially, you know, as far as she can expect. That's really like, I thought that was like really awesome forgiveness and like solidarity, you know, as like people involved in yeah. like the... Yeah. Seeing how torn up Emma was from that made me like like Emma more, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh I was just gonna say exactly what Nolan just said. That's my that's one of my favorite scenes. It's so good. In general, like there's a lot of badass Kitty Pride stuff. I really like the I think it was a cliffhanger from the third arc in Astonishing X Men where she has like kind of the same pose as one as Wolverine on like a really old X Men cover. Yes. It's from Dark Phoenix Saga that cover. Is it? Oh, yes, I remember. Right. Oh, it's actually not. I don't think it's the cover. It's actually the last page. Oh, okay. It's actually when Emma defeats and cages everybody, and then Kitty lets Wolverine out, and then Harry Leland forces Wolverine to go all the way to like the bottom floor in the sewer. Yes. And then he's like, it's my turn. And then Kitty had the same pose and everything, which is awesome. There's a lot of parallels now that you talk about yeah. because I think in that scene, it was. What's her name? Negasonic Teenage Warhead? <laughs> yeah. Who got uh, Kitty Underground. And um, yeah, she was trying to figure out this elaborate plan to take out Emma's Hellfire Club allies one after the other. Right. And I, I feel like that's a great example for how she she may not be like the strongest in terms of superpowers, but she's definitely like one of the most intelligent people in using them. So yeah, that's a yes. great moment. So real quick, do you guys have any recommended reading for Kitty Pride fans? I, I'm assuming that we can all say Astonishing X-Men. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair assumption. <laughs> yes. All new that's X-Men. All of it. Oh, I want to say God Loves Man Kills because that moment where she tells off a striker over Nightcrawler was a big moment for me too. Kat, what were we going to say? 
Yeah, I was going to say also God Loves Man Kills. It's one of my favorites. And Kitty has a huge role in that. And that moment where she tells off Stryker, oh, she stands up for I Nightcrawler. And Marius, you also said um, all new X-Men, which is one of my favorite Kitty moments too. You and Marius are going to be besties because Marius loves um, God Loves right. Man Kills. I wrote a research paper about X-Men and I wrote about God Loves Man Kills. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Oh my God. God Loves Man Kills is one of the best comics ever written. It's incredible. I'm so in love with it. It was cool. We we got to ask Claremont about it when he was on this yes. other wall. Yeah, it was really fun. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. We had a great time. I feel like the moment where she tells of Striker and steps in front of Nightcrawler is one of the strongest moments in comics because just a few years earlier when she was first introduced to Nightcrawler, we always got like internal monologue from her about her being really weirded out by his appearance. I mean she's a 30 year old girl and she's just being introduced into a world of mutants of course she would feel that way although as a reader you're also like well you shouldn't be so superficial because nightcrawler is just one of the nicest people and eventually she realizes that and in the end they develop like this really close friendship over the course of these years and then in god loves man kills she's willing to die for him basically and i mean what she tells strike is that well it doesn't really matter what his outward appearance is like and that doesn't make him any less human or worth considering or a beautiful person. So that's, again, a great role model moment for Kitty. Awesome. All right, so next up, we are talking about Storm, a.k.a. Aurora Monroe, a.k.a. many other titles that are a little cheesy, like Wind Rider and Weather Witch, a.k.a. Mrs. T'Challa. For a time. Yes, true. Mrs. Yeah, T'Challa. former Mrs. T'Challa, yeah. AKA Forge's lover. Also true. Like another character we'll discuss today. Mm, I'm bored of him. I, wish, I think he should die too. It's <laughs> like, what do you do? You make. <laughs> okay, cool. I mean, they can't find anyone else to make. <laughs> his powers are like that dude, Gliss Ramsey's powers, you know? They're like kind but of Doug regular Ramsey powers. Doug Ramsey is handsome. Doug Ramsey's Forge handsome. Forge is handsome too. He's, He's got a ponytail. Mm, I'm not into <laughs> it. I'm not digging it. It's not my thing. <laughs> okay. I don't want to go there. Okay, so, Shanae, why Storm? I actually pick Storm because of how complex her character is. And she is one of the most iconic African-American superheroes in the comic universe and one of the most iconic African-American female superheroes that I knew when I was growing up. And I liked the fact that she was put in a lot of leadership positions. And even though she had a lot of strife and troubles, like witnessing, well, being buried underneath rubble and having her parents die in, in the aftermath. Sad. Yeah. And developing claustrophobia, but not letting that get to her. And trying to discover her past. And always trying to be this strong character for her people. I always loved that because I normally don't see that much detail when it comes to African-American characters. It usually leads to a lot of arbitrary stereotypes. Right. And I also like how she presents herself. She's very confident in her sexuality. I like all the different hairstyles that she wears, which kind of proves to me that she's not a static character. And I just like the fact that she could make it rain. I love that. She has great powers. Yes. Okay, so who else uh, chose Storm on this list? I know she was, I'm a big fan of Storm. Let me just open it up, up to everyone. Why is Storm significant? Why is, uh, what makes her narratively significant to the X-Men? 
I think her powers, as you just mentioned, she has good powers. They lend themselves well to like that kind of ideal progression of an X-Men character's relationship to their powers, you know? Like they can be uncontrollable at times. They can kind of scale a lot. And so there's a lot of like whole discovery to their like uh, use of their powers, you know? Just like Iceman, just like some of the better X-Men and their like relationship to their powers. I feel like the take on Storm is really interesting because of the way the narrative kind of deals with her leadership position because it's very different from other leadership characters like obviously Cyclops and the way she escapes into like almost a fantasy of herself being a goddess at times so she doesn't have to deal with earthly problems or her human vulnerabilities because i think she is a very vulnerable character especially when it comes to um the trauma she suffered when she was a child i mean it's not that often that we see a leadership character that's vulnerable i guess so i like that uh storm in all of her appearances, she's always portrayed as, I think, the most respected of all the X-Men. Mm. Um, as far as X-Men having been persecuted and hated, Storm was always the one, I think, that every other superhero always respected. And I don't know if that's because of her her poise and her stature as being sort of a goddess-type figure, or maybe through her marriage to T'Challa and being the queen of Wakanda, but she has always been somebody that every single superhero, every single person has always respected and nobody nobody would cross her. Nobody would insult her, I think. I don't know if it's because of either of those things, like any more than like Cyclops' royalty or um, married into it. They're just both good leaders, and so they both get respect. She is a very strong leader. She even bested Cyclops to win that leadership role, and she carries Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that it's interesting because from whatever I've read with her, it seems like she has a really interesting relationship with Charles, which I really like, and I think that in a weird way, like he, he entrusts himself to a lot of people, I guess. But then for whatever reason, I feel like he talks to Storm in a way that, you know, like she gets him or like they're both like old souls or something. Like she is, a, she has a way of like really understanding Charles as like weird as it is to put it this way. If he's the patriarchy of the X-Men group, I feel like she's a matriarch. Like I never thought that Jean or Cyclops were like that. I think they were like people who like played house, but like they were never matriarch or patriarch of any you know you're hot and cold with some of the characters right like you're not a gene fan you're obviously an emma fan and a kitty fan and a many other people fan what do you think what's like your unabated opinion of storm i don't know i don't it's weird it's like similar to kitty in the sense that i have no reason to not like her and there's a lot of things that i really respect about storm and in a lot of ways like i wouldn't want to upset her because she's the kind of person, like, she wouldn't get angry and, like, yell at you, but she'd be like, I'm really disappointed in you. And, like, I thought you would be better than that. And you're like, God, like, that feels so bad. So she has, like, this very maternal, like, nurturing kind of, all I can think is matriarch. Like, she's, like, such an embodiment of, like, female matriarch to me. So you always really want to make her proud. So maybe that's why. Maybe because, like, I don't, haven't developed that within myself yet. So maybe it just doesn't connect yet so much and right. I'm not young enough where I'm like, oh, I love Storm because she's like my mom or like anything like that. So that might be why. I think uh, Storm comes across as so much more like emotionally mature than Scott and Jean, even though 
neither of them like fly off the handle at all. But I guess you could take it as the norm in comics to deal in a certain level of like stoicism. And Scott and Jean are both above that level, but Storm is like way above it. She's like an old soul kind of how she's portrayed. And like one way to see it is in their sexual relationships. Like in the comic in which Scott and Jean get married, isn't that the same one in which Storm like makes out with Forge? Yeah. Yeah. And like, look at the kind of difference between the kind of like very familiar, culturally hegemonic, normal pageantry of their marriage and Storm's just kind of like, it's treated as this like significant thing that she is like choosing someone as her potential partner you know yeah, i always thought they were strange bedfellows but yeah sure but it but just the way she comes across as mm. as like that's actually a really good point. as her choice whereas yes, instead right like she's being she's i would i don't want to call it aggressive it's just every the way everyone reacts is they're all like wow this is significant whereas scott and gene getting married is normal it's like what it was always coming you know like brad and angelina was in, or brad and jennifer uh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 we talked about this so much. I think it was episode 63 of the Storm podcast. So that episode is really about Storm being the most recognizable black superhero. I just want to touch on that, but I you know, I want to talk about more than that. Like what else makes Storm culturally significant in addition to that? I mean, I know it's it has to do with her being a black superhero, but out of all the black superheroes I know of, she's one of the few that kind of started with the relevance to the African mythology in relation to the tribes and the hierarchy that was happening in African nations. I I didn't see much emphasis in characters prior, and when I did, it was a one-off, like, little one sentence in the comic, but her backstory expanded on that so much, and I feel like that is narratively significant because in today's society, you have a diverse range of characters of different cultures, but when it comes to um, African culture, not just African-American culture, you don't hear much about it. That's why I don't really like Storm in Ultimate X-Men. I don't really like the movie version as much because to me, she is the goddess. I feel like another thing that makes her really culturally significant is uh, her origin story in a way. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Suez Canal crisis. I'm going right. That. Yeah. Because like the way the comic book deals with the cultural uh, or the historical background in that case. I mean, we have the floating timeline in the Marvel Universe, so I'm not sure if it would still be the same crisis of the same historical event at the same time it can be well adapted to other historical events i guess but in every case it would like showcase the pure terror of this young girl having to witness the death of her parents without being able to do anything about it so the well basically the way that claremont dealt with her trauma like her claustrophobia later on is really mature and i like that about the character and it's not something we see that often in comic books i would say i really like that she is extremely three-dimensional she's the leader of the x-men she's got this regal thing and i love that she happens to be a black superhero too and i think that's one thing that i think is really great about her let's get into her psyche a little bit so um how does storm want people to see her what's her public persona I would say the goddess. Yep. What I think. Basically, queen slash goddess. Capable. I I feel like sometimes it would be the goddess, but sometimes it would just be the leader of the X Men. I guess. Right. The HBIC. Right now she is right. Right. Right now, at present, yes. she's like the most senior member, and she's not like leading one team with Scott leading another team. She's like the only leader yeah. right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of the extraordinary X Men. 
Was Magneto leading Uncanny, Marius? You could argue that, right? Yeah, I mean, Magneto is kind of leading Uncanny, but then again, I mean, it's not really an X-Men team like in the typical sense, so I'm not sure if that counts, but like the X-Men team right now is the extraordinary team, I would argue, and Storm is the leader of not only that, but the school, so I think it's safe to say she's the leader of the X-Men or overall mutant community right now. Like, as as the newest issue that we read starts, she's sitting at Xavier's desk, right? Just as Magneto was yes. back in New Mutants when he was running the team, you know? When I think about her need and I think about that girl trapped in that, is it a bombing? Uh, it's a terrorist attack, right? And her parents die under that rubble. And I think about how helpless she must have felt. And without it becoming too circumstantial, how did her need... I mean, she probably already had her need, but, like... Was it born in that moment, whatever her need was? Because to me, I just can't think of a more traumatic event. And it's so traumatic to her because it's her claustro- It's the reason for her claustrophobia. I don't know if you guys saw that. That's one reason I chose those three issues. The, um, was it Uncanny in the 400s? Because we really got to see her overcome that claustrophobia for a second. I think that that was a very, like you said, it's such a traumatic event. And in a lot of ways, a lot of trauma that anyone experiences is going to shape what kind of dimensions they're going to have. So I think that that's a fair assessment. And I also think that it kind of triggered this need for her to like metaphorically and also physically have space and mobility, which is something that I think, because like anytime you think of an image of Storm, you see her flying and like, you know, like this goddess figure and she needs all this space and like she needs to be like, not even above everyone, but just like free of like issue um from anyone or like confinement so yeah i think that that's a valid yeah i think that her need is to just have to be able to like just have mobility emotionally and physically and so that's why when you see her just like with other people she's very poised and controlled because nobody has like threatened that kind of space i think i feel like her need could be being able to act upon her human problems and human emotions because that's well basically what she's unable to do in the moment that this need originated is to act at all because she's trapped i feel like that's something that's conflicting with her uh well public persona as a goddess because she pretends to be so above it all that she doesn't have to embrace her human problems and human emotions any longer which is why the leadership role is kind of more complicated for her than the goddess role right because as a leader she has to deal with human conflicts human emotions and her own weaknesses in that case that's kind of what has always been what since that moment when her parents died has been the problem for her Oh, I think her tragic flaw, I mean, I guess it would have to be the claustrophobia in a way, right? Isn't that what stops her from getting what she needs? Like the, like becoming, it's it almost, I think she needs a connection. I mean, like she like she wanted with T'Challa, like she wanted with Forge, and she doesn't get it. I was thinking about um, what Kat and Marius were talking about, and I was just believing that the tragic flaw, it could be a part of the claustrophobia because it reminds her that she is flawed. But I think her tragic flaw is that because she's been in the leadership role and because she's been in the goddess role, that she puts herself on this pedestal that she is incorruptible and she cannot be um, flawed or incorruptible in front of her peers, both the people that worship her and the people who follow her lead. 
And I think that is the tragic flaw because whenever it does happen, and it is bound to happen, because even though she's not human, she's also not God. She's not exempt from flaws, but she feels like she can't have flaws. And that's why it takes such a toll on her. Like she can't have flaws. She cannot be attached. She cannot differentiate from what people aspire for her to be. And she could. She just doesn't want to. I think that that's a totally perfect way of describing her tragic flaw, I think, because, you know, she is an icon, like she's a goddess, she's a a queen, like she has to be responsible for how she's like seen by other people. But also, like, I think that she really does feel like she needs to, or is not allowed to like have these human impulses or human flaws. And I think that the tragic flaw, it's like, I mean, this might be a stretch, but the claustrophobia is almost like uh, an extended metaphor for her of like this flaw, like this, just like a very normal, something that anyone could have, just like a normal fear, a normal flaw that, you know, gets in the way. And it also kind of is a metaphor of her being unable to get close to people, even though she wants to, because it's very distancing to make yourself into this pedestal person. Cause people are like, Oh, like she's amazing. Like, what would she ever want with like a mortal or like whatever? So like, there's that idea, like that's this dissonance, which is her flaw, which is that she wants to be strong, but she wants to also connect with people. And claustrophobia is kind of like that, where you're just like, you don't want to be enclosed by anything, but you don't want it to control your life either. I think, I think it's important to bring up too, what happens to her sort of when Rogue joins the team, not because of Rogue joining the team, I'm just using that as like a time post, but she has all this conflict in her and she, you know, uh, gets the mohawk, starts dressing in all leather. What did you guys think about that evolution of hers? I honestly think, and I say it a lot in um, other characters in real life, that she was not seeing herself as the incorruptible goddess that she was trying to be. So she was trying to identify as a more grounded person of what she would actually want to be by changing her appearance. Was that who she was, though? Was Mohawk Storm, as we call her? Was was it, was she already Mohawk Storm, or was she trying to become Mohawk Storm, in your opinion? I don't know. It's a bit of a toss of a coin. Every impression is a mirror in some way. Shanae, you're hitting us with this deep shit today. I feel like... By the time she got the mohawk, what she acknowledged about herself is that she has some really dark emotions inside of her. And she has, well, a lot of conflicts inside of her that she wouldn't have expected with the leadership role. So getting the mohawk and getting the leather jacket and changing her outward experience is kind of like her way of um, reflecting that inner change in her, I guess. Well, as you said, I mean, it's it's kind of like a mirror of uh, the way she develops, I guess. All right, let's go down the line. Favorite Storm kick-ass moment. Who wants to go first? I forget which comic it is, but when she's, like, naked and Jean gets all flustered about it and she's like, why? Yeah, that was the B-side of the classic X-Men. I love that one, too. I'm not I'm not sure about the name of the book, but there was, like, a mini-series about her... Um, well, essentially being torn between like two worlds, her world of being a queen in in Wakanda and her role as a prominent figure in the uh, in the ranks of the X-Men. I'm not sure. And I feel like in this book, um, a lot of her friends and family members were possessed by the Shadow King, which is like a really old foe of hers. 
Right. And there's this great moment in which she has to fight against Scott Summers and it's a really intense fight. And there's like this moment where she struck him down with lightning and she's trying to revive him because she really cares about her, well, her family in that case and her friends, even though she's got, well, they haven't always been that close. They haven't been, well, friends exactly, but she still cares about him deeply. And I don't know, I felt like that was a great moment because it also would show her like desperation about not wanting to, um, have things taken away from her by the Shadow King. I don't know. It was a really cute and good moment, I guess. What is that? I want to read that. Was it on our reading list? I don't think so. Uh, no, I don't think. Wait, hold on a second. I feel like it was one of the Black Panther ones. Storm and Black Panther. Storm and Black Panther. Because like, Shadow oh, King is awesome. I think it's called X-Men Worlds Apart. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do have that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I like Shadow King a lot, but I haven't read that much Shadow King, and it never occurred to me before that Shadow King and Storm would be like nemeses because they're both from Africa. Is that part of the rationale? No, no, he he's like an ancient being. But he's like, like it's in Egypt that or Morocco that Professor Xavier like. No, uh, it's, it's it's in Egypt. Egypt, okay. But, but he had he had possessed that man. Um, uh, Mood Farouk. But that's like his official like real human name if he has one. But like that's just yeah. a long term possession that he did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I really liked when she was fighting Cyclops over um, to see who would be the leader of the X-Men. And the way she beat him was she just took his visor at the end of the battle. And so that way he couldn't fight back or else he would blow everything up. And I thought that was just really clever. That was a really smart way to win. I would say, and I mentioned it before, it was that three-issue arc in Uncanny X-Men, which I forget the name of it was. But yeah, she seemed to overcome her or work through her claustrophobia for a second when defeating the Morlocks. And I, I don't know, I thought it was a very powerful moment as someone who's read her for, you know, 20 something years at the time to see her come up, get over that. Is defeating the Morlocks really a noble thing though? You know, like those, no, no, but those they were, they were attacking her. Yeah. But they're all manipulated. And they were like super It was a personal best Nolan. <laughs> Wait, you guys, who's, so who's next? We got Jean, Emma, Mystique, Ooh, someone's having a party over there, and we're having yeah. a party in here because we're talking about Rogue. <clears throat> Didn't work, but I tried anyway. Um, so, who chose Rogue? I forgot. Uh, I did. Why did you choose Rogue, Marius? In short, because she's one of my favorite female characters, but I feel like there's a lot of reasons for why one should choose Rogue because she's she's a really layered character, and like at first, it wasn't really easy for me to grasp what her what her public persona need and tragic flaw were or what the point of the character was but as soon as you get more into it and read a lot into her she's probably one of the most layered characters in the franchise i'd say rogue is one of the first characters after gene gray we did like a character study on i probably read more rogue than gene gray or emma frost combined because she was just always there when i was reading comics and um i found that i i really loved her and there's a specific issue that we'll get into. I think it's 173 or, or something like that. 182 or something of Uncanny where I think she's totally awesome in. But yeah, I'm just open this up to everybody. Uh, what do you think makes Rogue significant to the X-Men? What makes her significant to the narrative of the, the X-Men story? Marius. Well, first off, I feel like for me, Rogue has always been like the embodiment of giving people the benefit of the doubt or giving them like a second chance because that's what happened to her. That's what that, that's what Charles did, even though the rest of the team was totally against that. And I feel like usually that's not something you would defend rationally as in 
you wouldn't give up the rest of your team of superheroes to harbor a criminal. It does sound like something you wouldn't do. But it's it also sounds like something that Xavier would do because he's very noble about it. And in this case, uh, giving someone a second chance is something they really paid out because uh, Rogue has gone from like a really sinister villain when she was first introduced to one of the most noble heroes and biggest X-Men icons. So it did pay out in the end, and I like that narrative. I think Rogue exemplifies the really good metaphorical nature of people's powers in X-Men, like much more poignant and more interesting than in a lot of other comics. You know, like the whole metamutational aspect of some characters' powers is always really interesting because there's a kind of like a baseline across all of the extended cast of X-Men that they have mutant powers. And so it's easy to take for granted that Rogue's ability to like absorb to copy and take away from others their powers is really interesting and doesn't work in most comics because they don't have that kind of like common source of the powers. It's also so easy to overlook how like simply tragic and poetic it is that she can't touch people when you become used to that at a young age and you like never think about it from an adult's perspective, you know? I love the metaphor of that. I was first introduced to the character of Rogue when I saw the first movie, actually, back in... I don't I don't remember. I was like... Really, 2000. Yeah, right. I, well, like I didn't watch it in 2000, but I was, I was really young and I hadn't really gotten into the comics at all yet. And my dad would show me the movie. And the first thing I noticed about the comic books is that Rogue was really different in them. And I kind of noticed how she was really shy in the movie adaptation but she was really upfront about her sexuality in the comic books and i just feel like it's good to have a female character like that because it exemplifies kind of like i don't know if it sounds weird but uh reading rogue is like a good explanation of why slut shaming is pointless if that makes sense she just kind of gives me that like i i just feel like she's a good example for that i don't know for me i think about rogue as a metaphor for someone who is a survivor of sexual abuse and i talked about this a lot in the podcast that was about rogue because you know that whole thing about not being touched and in her case she like literally can't be touched and um some people have that on a psychological level of a very similar issue and i think it's cool the way the metaphor works out with her you know i also like that she's a character from the south and she defies those kinds of stereotypes as well i i think that that's worth talking about too i never ever met a person with a skunk stripe the way rogue has one but i think it looks cool is there anything else that anyone else wants to add about how is rogue significant outside of comics i think that it's important to have someone who owns something of aspect of her own personality like her sexuality without having it it be externally validated by something because rogue is the exemplifies the kind of person not necessarily sexual abuse but someone who can feel and be sexual in her own right without having to follow it up or uh, externally validate it in any way and like literally rogue can't so i think that it's important to have that kind of nuance in a character but i don't know how purposeful that was that's the reason why i hesitated to answer the question like how much of what makes her relatable is her struggle is her struggle real to all of us 
Well, I think, well, it's interesting because I don't know if it's even a curse. I mean, I don't know. It's weird because it depends on how you interpret it. To me, I guess I know like the movies portrayed it as such. And like there are comics where like they really own, like they really go ham on, you know, like, oh, I can't touch anyone. Like, and like, I get that because it's like hard to have intimacy with that kind of barrier. But whenever I read Rogue, it never felt like she had a pity party about it. If anything, she was like, yeah, this is just, it's like a condition I have. And she's like, it doesn't change that I'm rogue and this is my personality and I'm friendly and outgoing and sexual or whatever. Like, it doesn't change any of that. And like, sure, it comes into play in sensitive subjects like intimacy or like, you know, when she wants to like kiss someone or like something like that. But at the same time, like, for some reason, like, I just never thought that that was that her powers defined her at all. So it's very weird for me. I think another thing that's really interesting about Rogue is aside from not being able to touch people, when she does touch people, she absorbs their consciousness. So a lot of the time before she was able to get a grasp of her powers, she would lose herself in all of these minds that she had. At times it was like, there's one arc where there was like 8 billion minds at once. And she has all these walls inside where she blocks herself off. And sometimes she has that constant battle of trying to find who Rogue is buried amidst all these other consciousness inside of her. And I got to say, I never thought of her uh, powers as a metaphor for um, like sexual assault survivor status. I I always just thought of them as a general kind of metaphor for how like to touch someone is to like know them more and for them to affect you and also potentially to like affect them detrimentally more than you could otherwise if you don't touch them. Yeah, I I think that's there too. Yeah. I would argue that people who have endured and survived such a thing would say that it's uncanny, if you will, uh, that whole thing about you know not wanting to be touched and wanting to be separated. And it's hard to not see that in that, whether it's there on purpose or not. I pretty much agree that it's definitely, uh, well, it's possible and likely to interpret it like that. But I also like Nolan's interpretation of, which is like a more like general and well, maybe for some people more easy to get into um, interpretation because um, I don't know. I feel like, and we see that especially in the Mike Carey. I I think it was Mike Carey who wrote her X-Men Legacy. We see how she's kind of afraid of, of losing herself by giving away too much power to other personalities that could inhabit her body. And that's like kind of why she's, well, not self-centered, but or maybe she is self-centered in a way, but like not in a selfish way, but in a way that it's necessary for her to do that in order to survive, I guess. And I, I feel like that's kind of easy to get into because it's, it's kind of like this fear of closeness, if that makes sense, to have like others be too influential about your personality, I guess. So you guys, let's go down the line. Favorite kick-ass rogue moment. I was just reading the beginning of Extreme X-Men earlier today, and she was like using both Wolverine's powers and the powers that she originally absorbed from Miss Marvel, Captain Marvel. You know, um, uh, I don't even know how she got Wolverine's powers, but she had them at that time, and that was awesome. And it just exemplified how potentially badass she can become as like 
badass moment. I think there's no one who like beats people up that we're discussing today who beats people up more than Rogue. Like that's yeah, yeah. she's kicked some ass. For yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Including flying cosmic level characters like that dude with the mohawk from the Shi'ar Empire. Like she Gladiator, can fight that yeah. dude. One of my favorite rogue moments is um, the arc in X-Men Legacy where she's going through that danger room simulation where she's essentially trying to fight through all of her demons to get to the root of where her problems are, where she's kind of, she's harboring this um, this personality of mystique and she's going through all these different rooms and just kind of fighting through and finding out like where the source of her issue lies and that's when she finally gets kind of this mastery over her powers. I like that one too. I liked in that issue... Or in that run, Gambit was like, okay, let's get together now. And she's like, no, 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 I'm going to yeah. go meditate. <laughs> because that's what, that's what she should do. And it was awesome. And it, was, it showed how strong she is. I think one of my favorite moments is in uh, Uncanny Avengers 14, I guess. Which is like a really intense fight between her and the Grim Reaper. And the Grim Reaper is like making fun of her and he's like, you don't even have any superpowers of your own. But then she pops like the Wolverine claws and is like, yeah, but I borrowed one from a friend. That's a really cute moment because now that she's in control of her powers, she can, well, use them to help each other in a way with her friends and family. I just thought that that was a really strong moment. I think it's X-Men 197 to 200. I think you guys just mentioned it um, earlier in a different conversation, but like when um, Cable like telepathically tells her like to wake up from her coma or she's like in a bed like she's in a sick bed and she's like healing and he's just like like your team needs you and she just like lurches up and is just like i need my clothes like i need to go save my team now and she saves the day and then just walks away in her like green thing and just walks away from her like mystique and is like excuse me like you're my mom but you started to care like when now like cool things and she just owned it um, for me, I would have to say it's that issue 182 of Uncanny when that S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, she goes and rescues him and she gets confused and she thinks she's Carol Danvers the whole time. And then it was just so sad in that issue. And she's like, but I am her. I absorbed everything she knows. You know, she's like, for all intents and purposes, I am Carol Danvers. And then he's like, whoosh, and like slaps her. And I was like, damn. I don't know. There was just something so talking about being in her need in that moment, which I think to be taken care of. And I thought that's what I liked reading about that. And I, and I, I liked that this struggle between who she is and then who uh, Carol Danvers, Miss Marvel is. So I kind of, I kind of liked that. So uh, let's go on and talk about Mystique a little bit, shall we? Nolan, she was your choice. Why did you choose Mystique? Uh, I mean, I wanted to choose a villain. I even. Uh, wanted to choose Celine at first and then Mystique. I mean, <laughs> um, Mystique was at least an X Man for a while and is now currently. Uh, yeah, but still not like with like proven uh, loyalties. You know, I think that's true. Some other villains, including Rogue, have become much more like uh, dependably good than Mystique has. Uh, but right now they're like playing up this whole like intermixture of the villains and the heroes, and I dig that. Just fundamentally, I think X-Men's rogues gallery is one of the things that makes it great. One of the things that makes it stand out as one of the best comics. It's, you know, no one can dispute Batman's status of greatness. And part of the reason is the villains. Probably the main reason, I think, is the villains. Same goes for X-Men. Mystique is just like a really good example of like a person with like really well-chosen powers 
a really like solid kind of set of adaptable goals that can be applied to villainous and some heroic situations. And also number one reason, actually number one reason she was a consulting detective who slept with Irene Adler, which means that she was Sherlock Holmes. That's what that means. Like there's no other thing that that can mean, but that she was Sherlock right. Holmes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Do, do you guys think that because even though she's a character who could be anyone she wants and look any way she wants, that she never really loses who she is in all of that? Or do you think that she changes for each personality a little bit? I don't know if she changes for each personality. Or, like, what do you mean? Like, do you mean, like, every time she transforms externally um, into another person and then she turns back to Mystique, does she, like, take a part of that person with her? Or, like, what do you, like... Yeah, I mean, obviously that's not her power to do so, but I guess it's, like, I think if I had that power, I would constantly be getting lost in who I was, and she doesn't ever seem to do that. She seems to know who she is. I feel like she's just a really good actress. Con artist, Stephen. Well, she's really good at deflecting, too. Like, being able to morph into anyone you want, it just means that you're really good at putting up walls around who you are. So, like, you have your own convictions about who you are, and then you just morph whatever you want and adapt around that. It's just not as though she's, like, taking on different personas for the enjoyable experience of, like, finding out Sometimes what it's she like. Does. Or, like, living that... Well, I mean, she takes on certain ones to, like, make money or have influence, but she's not just kind of, like, a person of pure curiosity who will spend her, like, somehow supernaturally long lifespan, we don't know how long, just, like, you know, trying out different lifestyles purely for the sake of it. That's never the reason. She always has, like, a manipulative goal in mind, you know, like, a very, like, well-thought-out, you know, plan some of the time in order to achieve, like, political ends, you know, not just, like, wealth or power or anything like that. Right. Do you think that as a villain she has redeeming qualities? Yes. Political ends make for redeeming qualities. I think every villain has to have redeemable qualities or else they're not interesting. Even Apocalypse? So I think, I, I'm thinking specifically of the one issue or the one storyline where you find out the origin of Nightcrawler. and Yeah, the Draco. It's sad because she's like such a badass and is just like having fun and being whatever and had everything and then got all messed up by Azazel. And even at the end, she's like, why did you have to be like that? Like, why did it have to be like this? You know, and like, it's sad because like, that's like a vulnerable, like she was just a girl who was really into some dude. Like that happens sometimes. That's so like, true. That's people. what I thought too. So, like, I think that's redeemable. Like, the fact that she could, like, fall for someone and, like, have a baby. That's sad. I would also say her love for Rogue makes her redeemable. Like, at the end of Messiah Complex. It's f***ed up love. It's tainted love. But it's love. I would agree. And I also think that what makes her, well, not necessarily redeemable, but definitely interesting is how um, we get to see her as a mother, in, in one case, with Nightcrawler, whom she didn't have the opportunity to actually raise. It's interesting to see how she feels about that, because when she talks to Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler in, I think it was Uncanny X-Force by Rick Remender, she was really regretting that she didn't have the chance to just have a normal life with, with her son. And then we do see her as a mother, as Rogue's mother, and 
it's just interesting how she would be manipulative about that in some moments and where she would do really fucked up stuff to her daughter. But then again, there's a lot of scenes where we get a feeling for how she genuinely loves her and cares for her. I think that, I mean, it's just to add on to what Marys was saying. I think one of the things that makes her so interesting as a character and redeemable that probably goes into her psyche a little bit too, is that she's very fickle. I feel like she's very adaptive. She kind of like moves through life in this weird adaptable way, which is amazing. And that makes her a survivor, but it's also crazy because then she does fickle things. Like I think she can compartmentalize really well. So when she's hurting someone that she cares about, like her daughter or son like she can compartmentalize it mentally but then later she's like oh like, like it hits home like when she gets a chance to really feel it so she's very fickle do you th- i don't think we can talk about all of these uh, all of her truth stuff but do you think her tragic flaw is exposed in wolverine get mystique in that arc yeah i um i was gonna mention that there's this one moment in the end where you know, they have their final showdown and Wolverine says to Mystique something along the lines of, you know, you'll never win because you're not going to know love. You're not going to be capable of knowing love. You're not going to have friendships. And I think that is her flaw. But as everybody was saying, deep down inside, there's something in there that really does make her love her children and love the people she's had relationships with. Mm-hmm. I mean, she killed Mr. Sinister for, for Rogue in Messiah Complex. Yeah. She's uh, ruthless. That's for sure. Yeah, she's definitely she's one ruthless bitch. I mean, woman. Oh, my God. She slayed with, oh, my God. I loved her narrative with Logan. I was all about that. That was all. I love that, too. Yeah. So speaking of which, what was, was that your favorite kick-ass moment for Mystique? For me, I guess so. Yeah. I think that, that her final showdown, she's like, he's calling me a coward. Like, that's not cool. And then she, like, just basically gets naked and gets all this guns and like ammunition and she's like coming get me like damn girl okay my favorite mystique moment is in uh wolverine get mystique when she is transformed as that female escort and she's with the senator right Ah. and she strangles him with her thighs i was like yeah (laughs) we all aspire to that level of thigh muscle not sure if movies count, but I really love the mutant and proud narrative of First Class. That is true, yes. But she's not like, I mean, she is very mutant and proud in the comics too, but in a different she way. She is, yes. The, the scene with Azazel really reminded me of uh, her scene with Magneto in First Class. Right. Because it's like this moment where basically her lover wants her to accept her actual body and feel great about her actual yes. body feel the beauty mm-hmm. about that and I, I kind of got the sense that in that scene she was re- re- well as close as it gets to like her movie representation mm-hmm. or at least the the Jennifer Lawrence movie I think so too because I think because we see her vulnerable in that moment yes yes and we don't normally do that Sinead do you have one it's also from the movies it's her interaction with Nightcrawler when he inquires about her ability to mimic and he's like well why don't you just go ahead and look like everyone else and her response is because we shouldn't have to I do think that ties a little bit into a bit of like her flaw and need because for all the um, adaptability that she has in personality and all the adaptability she has as her mutant power no one seems to really want to accept her for who she truly is save for a select few Mm -hmm. so you have the power to be anyone you want but you can't be yourself. Right. 
Because they're not useful to her when they're right. when they're doing that. Yeah, which is sad, you know. It is sad, yeah. I would say for me, I don't know if it's for shock, but when I read that X-Men, is it 199 or 200? And then she shoots Rogue in the chest and starts Messiah Complex? Yes, um, it's uh, 200. She, yeah, you found out that she was with the Marauders the whole time, and so was Regan Wingard and all those other people? Mm. Yes. I, I was like, damn, Mystique. I know. One she, cunning lady. Yeah, she does not f*** around. No, she shot her freaking daughter in the chest. Like, point blank, yeah. It was like oh. not... She shot her daughter first in the chest. Yep. Just pointing that out. So would you guys... She shot Wolverine in the nose. <laughs> right up into his brain case or whatever. Just. She's pretty bad. That was real smart. You know, that was real smart. So can we all say that we all recommend the Prelude to the Draco storyline in the Chuck Austin run of Uncanny? And we, we can all recommend Wolverine yes, Get Mystique? Yes, and also Get Mystique. The 20s plot line of Get Mystique, though, was real weak, I thought. The the like Iraq-Afghan war setting was real strong. Really like interesting commentary on like U.S. policy mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Especially, I think her baddest-ass moment was when she was dressed as that nun and she was like leading that yes. like team of children. Like That was disguised. Some disguise should be her best moment, right? And like right. that was like that was a great disguise in a bar of like Marines or whatever. And then she just like jumps on the truck and drives off, just like making it obvious. That was awesome. I think the twenties plot line had this like clearly nonsensical twist. Not it didn't work. They were kind of like playing the cops against each other all along or whatever. I mean, it wasn't a nonsensical twist. It was just like oh. That's not what I thought. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, though, that she kind of wanted to live with Logan there and have, like, a mutant community there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But we, we didn't know that. We don't know if that's true, though. That's, that's why true. he, like, yeah. sold them out to the cops. So that's why she's like, well, now we'll never know if you really wanted to or if you, like, if I was going to sell you out first. So Right. That's part of the but problem I'm, with it. It's just unclear. I doubt it, though. Awesome. We love Mystique. We have two ladies left. We have Emma Frost and... Jean Grey, um, one I can definitely say Kay loves, and one I can definitely yeah. say Kay and Nolan aren't too big of fans of. No. Uh, I think that no says everything. Kat, you're a Jean Grey fan, right? Um. Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I st- what about Shanae? <laughs> I like my redheads. You like your redheads? Oh. Jean Grey was red-haired in the uh, movie. She's always, she's every time, yeah. always a redhead, for sure. But I'm impartial. Which is Mary Jane Watson, you know. No, okay, I guess Marshall's I'm even the, worse. <laughs> All right, you know what? I love Jean Grey. She's the patron saint of this apartment. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't believe in saints, but I do believe in Jean Grey. If you don't believe in saints, why do you have Buddha on your wall? Oh, because I, I just got it out of Urban Outfitters, and I thought it looked cool when I was 19. <laughs> So, Justin, why did you choose this character? Well, I chose Jean Grey because I think um, I find her to be a very my, – my friend Nick, who's part of Comics First, we used to talk way back in the day, like nine years ago. And, and he's like this big kind of tough football player. And I'm like, why do you like Jean Grey? You seem to like her in like this non-sexual like, sense. And you seem to sexualize every other female I've ever heard you speak of. And he's like, because she's so noble. And I was like, oh. And then I started to kind of see her that way. But for me, what I kind of like about her 
and what I think makes her human to me is um, how self-involved she can be at times. For example, in one of the storm issues that we read, Jean's roommate comes and visits her in the hospital after she becomes a phoenix. And Xavier is like, oh, I, you know, I would really love to meet you. I really have to go. Storm is about to die. And Xavier leaves. And Jean Grey's like, Misty, I'm so sorry. I've never known Xavier to be so rude. You know, that's just Jean right there. Also, she pries. <laughs> These are almost reasons like why you shouldn't like her, which is why I like her. Like in that issue of classic X-Men, she pries into Aurora's mind and she finds out that her parents were killed and that's why she's claustrophobic. And then she outs Iceman. Let's not forget about that. Um, which actually I thought I was a little bit offended like that. I would not want people to find out about my personal life. This is like, a big scandal. Yeah. Special yeah, I, without my permission. Without yeah, and and then he's like, Oh, I, I think I'm bi, as like many men do say as like a whatever transitionary period and she's like no you're totally gay and i was like that's really embarrassing i was like that's i'm like people kill themselves over that for real i mean i'm laughing but it's true and i didn't like that she did that but now that it's been like some time i'm like jean gray you're so lovably obsessed with yourself also why do i like her even though she is that way she's also done many selfless things um of course spoiler alert the biggest being her killing herself at the end of dark phoenix saga um she's also very maternal yes she has her issues she's not as above the fray as storm is though storm is above the fray maternal um jean gray is not above the fray maternal and what i also like about jean gray is how angry she is because yes she's like this put together beautiful female former former model has a phd from columbia by the way in what um, again uh I, I forget i think it's genetics wow yeah and she got her undergrad at empire state university in fashion yeah fake university just just pointing that out but yeah she's also really angry and i kind of like that so she's like this poised you know so it's like it's like we assume that she's this trope this as you call her like this typical cheerleader girl. Uh, prom queen prom queen yeah, yeah. but in reality, she's really pissed off, and she's this cosmic-level entity. And one thing I love what she does, and a lot of people hate this about her, is in the Grant Morrison run, when she finds out Emma and Scott are having this telepathic affair, she brings Emma back to the, the scariest point in her life, which is her childhood, and totally exposes her, just like she eventually does with Iceman, and just like she did to Storm in the past, and many others. But I gotta say, I'm with Jean on that one. You don't mess with someone's man. It's weird that we consider Jean to be like the kind of like arbiter of what is or is not like ethically acceptable no, psychic behavior. No, a lot of people think what she did was wrong. Well, either way, it's her who sent, uh, figures as the center of the discussion, you know, when like we all recognize that like Xavier has more powerful psychic abilities than her, but that he always has this kind of like moral compass preventing him from using them except oh God, I, until I his like here, that's not necessarily true i know except until his like what i consider to be a kind of like a shallow kind of boring like oh xavier's evil after all kind of like turn but the point is that like back when that had not yet been retconned into place gene was the one who every once in a while ever so rarely used her psychic powers for evil and Xavier never did, you know? And, like, no one else ever did because there weren't too many other psychics for us to even, like, ask and answer the question of, like, well, did Emma they certainly use used their powers? Power well, yeah, but Emma was, like, cackling loudly and when her subordinates were like, were, like, turning against each other. I mean, like, in Dark Phoenix Saga, she's the most stereotypical villain. Like, there's no question. That's true. Like, and Firestar, yeah. too. Yeah, and then yes, Firestar, Yes, definitely too. Firestar. But there's a little bit of... Uh, I feel there's just a little bit of complication just inserted a little bit into Firestar, and that's what they build on later on. But that's my own optimism about that story and its like potential 
Right. Okay, so we talked about this before in a, in a prior podcast. So let's just have it out here with everybody here. You know, we all read the arc in uh, Grant Morrison's run. It's what Jean did to Emma in Grant Morrison's X-Men when she discovers the affair with Cyclops and she goes into Emma's mind and makes her relive her childhood, which traumatizes Emma, is that immoral after finding out that this woman's been basically... Not only is she sleeping with your man, she's dressing up like you to do it. That is f***ed up. But psychic powers are a whole different ballgame, you know? Yeah, it's still... But you know what? That's worse than doing it in person, I think. Yeah, because if Cyclops had known, I don't think he would have gone through with it. I think he did go through knowingly in Astonishing X-Men, among other... I mean, uh, new X-Men. Uh, Astonishing X- in Astonishing X-Men, he knowingly engages in sex oh, with yes, yes, Emma, yes. who is like posing as yeah. Jean. And in new X-Men, I don't know. I never read it. I just listened to the rest of y'all podcast on it. Oh, yeah. yeah no, I mean, um, I think he definitely knowingly goes into it. What it, okay, That's what and- I'm saying, though. That's why like, it's hard to like make a moral judgment on it, because I understand why Jean did it, and in the heat of a moment or like especially when it's your husband i totally get like being vindictive and like doing something like that because you have to get yours but at the same time it's like why didn't you do that morally questionable emotional baggage with your husband then like there's clearly more going on if you're just like deflecting and just like attacking another woman instead when really it's like he even he was like look into my mind look at my memories and it's like yeah pay attention to your husband Okay, I agree with that on, like, a real-world level, like, in, like, real life, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I never think you should, a woman should blame the other woman when th- those kinds of things happen, nor should a man blame the other man. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a relationship thing. But I also think in the context of X-Men, with Emma Frost and Jean Grey being pitted against each other since Dark Phoenix Saga, after Jean Grey is brought back to life, they switch bodies in, in the 90s in the Jim Lee and Chris Claremont run. You know, they have a long history of being rivals. I honestly think that Emma, the whole reason her relationship with Scott exists is just for her to get back at Jean. So it's almost to me like Jean is like, listen, like, husband, man, you're irrelevant. This is between us. Because this is an extension of the rivalry that we're Right, I get that. And I don't disagree with that. I think that that's true. I think it's just that, I don't know if it's even a rivalry. I think Emma wants to be Jean. Oh, that's so sad. It is sad. It's kind of true. That's what it is. Sucks to suck. That's why I like her. Because she wants to be someone she's not, but oh, she can't so, be. And she knows that is that's really heartbreaking. This whole character that's somebody else. And that's be really kind heartbreaking. Of about it. That's why like she has such a contrived personality, which I like. Because you can so see that it's like a wall. You gave me the feels. That was like the truest it's thing. Supposed to be Jean. Concerning Jean Grey and Emma Frost and their rivalry, I think... Yeah, it, it does extend very far back, and I have a lot of feelings about it. Um, I think Jean Grey, one of the reasons why I don't really like her, I mean, it makes her an interesting character, but I feel like she succumbs to that dark side of herself a lot. And then with Emma Frost, later on in um, in Astonishing X-Men, she starts to exhibit a lot of remorse and a lot of guilt, and you start to she starts to express that she really does love Cyclops, and as confident as a woman she is, she still feels a lot of insecurity about Cyclops' relationship with Jean Grey. She says straight up, like, you know, even a dead body is more important than I am. So right. I think she has a That's lot of... That's one of Justin's favorite lines. It is. Yeah. Oh. My- 
Oh, man, I want to say my favorite Emmeline. I can't help it. But it's an astonishing excellent when Kitty Pride's like, do you need to talk? And then she turns into Diamond, and she's like, I'm made of diamonds, honey. I'm my own best yeah, friend. Yeah, that's a good line. That's a yeah. Good line. <laughs> I know that this is kind of jumping into the segment about, like, favorite lines or whatever, but my personal favorite moment with Emma when, like, Jean... It's a Jean and Emma moment. It was during the Grant Morrison run, and they think that Xavier had just left them to, like, the mob of people because they had just, like, outed the school as being, like, um, mutants. And Emma's all pissed off and they're all for all the right reasons. And then Gina's like, oh, well, we have to still do what Charles said. And then at, like, some point they, like, had a tiff or something, and she's like, Emma, like, why are you such a bitch? And like but. she was just like breeding, honey, years and years of breeding. And I'm like, what the fuck? That's so <laughs> but so awesome. I think she says breeding, darling, top class breeding. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, she's like a show pony. I love her. <laughs> I mean, we can't even stay focused because I have another Emma Frost quote I want to say. <laughs> what is it? It's from the Emma Frost comic. And it's like the very last line in it when um, she starts to like go into her dark side a little bit. And after she defeats Astrid Bloom and she's yes. like, everyone's like, you know, talking about like what they're slut shaming her and she can read all their minds. And she's like, I think Astrid was right about the whole lot of you, the whole lot. And it was sad because even the yeah, visual because you could see her being disillusioned because at first she was so about like mutant kind and everything right doing the right thing yeah oh man okay so it's it's so hard to talk about gene without talking about emma to me it's weird to talk about gene without emma yeah because they're i don't want to say that they're two faces of the same coin because that's kind of contrived but it's kind of how you can't really talk about cyclops without gene either like you kind of like they're i think the best way to put it is that like it sounds kind of horrible to put it this way and i might be wrong but at least from my, what I understand, like the people that we talked about so far, like Storm, Rogue, Mystique, these are characters that they stand by themselves. They're alone. They or like they stand alone as like their own characters. And I don't want to say that Gina, Emma and Cyclops don't, but somehow like they they're more about their relationships than themselves. And but what about Rogue, the whole Rogue Gambit? Yeah, Magneto that's true. Triangle. Too, yeah. Way more interesting. Well, I wouldn't say way more interesting, but it's another type of love triangle. I like Magneto a lot. Um, speaking to that about them kind of not existing outside of those relationships a whole lot, another reason why maybe I'm not such a huge fan of Jean, well, I will say that I do really like um, time-displaced Jean in All New X-Men. But well, as I hate far as her. Like, but but I, I respect that you like her. Yeah, I do. I really I really like the time displaced Jean because she's you know she's before all the baggage and she's learning about what her future is and she's learning how to use her powers. It's really fascinating. But as far as the regular timeline Jean goes, maybe I haven't read the right Jean Grey stories. But for me, it's hard to understand her as a character outside of the Phoenix Force. I feel like a lot of what I've read is just Jean Grey's struggle with the Phoenix Force, and I have a hard time grasping who she is outside of that. Maybe it defines her too much. I don't know if that's a negative comment on her character it certainly makes her interesting but for me not somebody that i really like a whole lot it's true no i i think that the writers have sometimes used the phoenix force as like a deus ex machina uh with so many storylines and i think that i would say that when gene came back in 1984 or 86 uh yeah 1986 and x factor one well, actually, she came back in 19, before that, in Avengers, and then Fantastic Four, and then X-Factor 1. It was, like, the original five, 
you know, in their own team alongside the X-Men. And she had a good long run there until about 2004. So about, is that 20 years? 20 years where she was just Jean and there was no Phoenix stuff. That's really uh, nice. It was kind of cool. I mean, she did have issues with it because at one time, but also then there was Madeline Pryor. Madeline Pryor, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was like, like her five years of it or whatever, including like having a kid and then whoops, that all was oh just God, a yeah. Let's not talk about how Cyclops... Like, Jean Grey came back to life, and Cyclops just dropped Jean Grey's clone and his kid there and moved in with Jean Grey and then didn't tell her. This is what I remember that I wanted to say, is, like, the, when you compare the two characters, like, the single thing that you automatically hold constant without even thinking about it is they both fell in love with Scott Summers. And, like... Oh, that guy. And, they, and yeah, and it's, like... I mean, that's not like really. A, like, I can see why they like him, but at the same time, I'm, like, Scott's... F- Logan, so I can't. Well, whatever. okay, that's a big change for you. You used to hate him. I know. I I actually really think that I like Cyclops, but I think he needs to be gay. That's fine. You know, whatever it is. I don't think he's is. good with women. Either I like way, that like, perspective. I never considered it that way. I don't know. I think like, he's I just too don't think he's good with gay. women. I think he's really bad at being a boyfriend. Or a oh, he's horrible at it. Yeah, be a really good husband or boyfriend to another man. Well, there's a lot of sexual tension between. I know. Yeah. And Grant Morrison's right. Yeah. I was like, that's purposeful. Grant. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Cheers. Wine glass to you. Thank you. Even though you guys aren't huge Jean Grey fans, what makes Jean Grey narratively significant? Similarly to how I feel about Emma, I think that her negative qualities make her very re- realistic. Like she, I think the reason why I'm, I must, I on a personal level don't like her is more that she probably reminds me of someone I really didn't like in school or something. Cause like, or that she, or like her weaknesses or the things that she chooses or not even chooses, but the, the flaws that she has are things that I feel strongly about. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like what she chooses to project out and like allow people to see even like her flaws are not what I would choose to show people. Like Emma shows like her this like innate bitchiness and like, oh, I need like things to be satin and like diamond or whatever. And like that's and I could see how people could hate that. So that's a flaw that she just kind of projects with Jean, her, her the flaw that she projects is like, I'm really self-righteous and I'm kind of a goddess too, guys. And remember, I'm really strong and I can do stuff. And, you know, it's just like, fuck you, Jean. Like, <laughs> no, like you're really strong. You're really like important empath. Like we get it. Calm down. So is your problem that her flaws are more or less like compliments to her attributes and personality instead of like, flaws that a normal character would try to go through like the way that it's projected her flaws are kind of a positive for her well her flaws for her like the flaws are that she it's like about her all the time and she lacks the self-awareness to know that like with emma like it's almost like i like keep saying contrived but like with emma to me it just seems like this false persona that is just like hilarious to me that like it's kind of like this icy sense of humor that's like, oh, darling, like I need everything to be diamonds and like really expensive. And I only came back for my handbag, but I saved the day. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> like she's just like a bitch. like, you know, like so I don't know. It's again, that's like the one thing like sometimes that that I'm sure other people don't find that likable in Emma. But for me, I find that likable. And then I'm sure people find jeans like 
weird, not even weird, but like lack of self-awareness, but like obsession with herself, really cute. And I don't. So it's just about what you personally prefer in a human, I guess. Nolan, what were you going to say? It was about Jean's and Emma's mutual attraction for Scott and the fact that Emma, I am disappointed in for being attracted to Scott, but for Jean, it's just like, of course she is, you know? It's just like the most normal thing in the world, you know? You can't be disappointed in Emma, because you know what? She started sleeping with her to get back, started sleeping with him to get back at Jean, and and she's in touch with her emotions enough to start to fall in love with the man she keeps sleeping with. That only makes sense, but I would hope that she would be more callous than that, I guess. I totally understand that sentiment. I'm so glad you said it. It it does make sense, but it's like, well, then she's just bad at carrying out her like schemes, you know, which like No, it's not that she's bad at carrying mystique. out her schemes. She's actually really good at it usually. It's just that it's there's something fine. about fucking it's Scott, Scott Summers. It's Scott's magic dick that did it. <laughs> and like, she's even like, mad at herself. Like, no, he she, like, she's even mad at herself at the end of the like of that arc though, because you see her like her and like Logan have a moment because Logan has that same shit with Jean. And they're both just like, sure. well, like we're both two fools in love, like, I guess. The difference is like Logan's and they, like, interesting, and you know, like they like arms the, and is like crying. I mean, and it's interesting as like like a fucking animal eating another animal. But Logan's damn interesting. That's why he's so popular. But I but guess. Scott is like <laughs> just Scott. Like there's they don't like it was like whatever the magic of Scott's dick was always preordained from the very beginning when they were teenagers who were flirting with each other, you know, and that was like always going to happen. No, but it, it could That's have been his warned. secondary mutation. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what he's going on. That's what he's got going on downstairs. But like he, you know, either way, it like that just was always part of the arcs of the characters, you know, whereas like Emma Frost is like a much more interesting, I feel like, turn of events that she would be good and would, for instance, sympathize with Kitty Pride. That's much more interesting than that Scott turns into a terrorist and dies. I'm going to answer my own question. What makes Jean Grey narratively significant? Well, the Dark Phoenix saga happened way back when, and they're still talking about it today. It was such a big deal. It was so well done. Although, you know, and we all know I love Claremont, but when I go back and read it, I'm like, oh, wow, this is some little kid stuff. But every time I'm like away from it for like a week or something after, that major sacrifice that she gives at the end is just so selfless to me. And I love that they love each other in Dark Phoenix Saga. And what makes her culturally significant? Well, Jane became the Phoenix at the same time the Invisible Woman in Fantastic Four became the most powerful member. I mean, a clear response to second wave feminism, if you ask me. And I would like other people to talk about that. Well, I think that, um, sorry, I was going to say something that was really not nice about that, but... I mean, I think that in response to second wave feminism, I think that that's valid because if I'm not mistaken, second wave feminism had a lot to do with not just being like, okay, like equal rights and all that stuff, but it's also about kind of characterizing your femininity in the way that you would like to um, or the way you choose to. So you don't have to be necessarily androgynous or like butch or like anything like that. So I think that it is important that that was happening. But my whole contribution was going to be that why Jean Grey and the Dark Phoenix Saga might have been culturally significant. I think that they had a huge part in why nerd guys like redheads. <laughs> really? Yes. People well, you don't think love that was redheads. Jane? Are you kidding me? People Not love Jane, redheads. You like both. any chance that they have like even Firestar, I was like, oh, another redhead, here we go. Like it's oh, always I love her, like- <laughs> You don't think nerd guys identify with like Nightcrawler and Beast and regard Scott as the dude who beat them up when they were kids. 
Mm, but Scott was the one who, who broke no. up the fights. We know this. Mm, yeah. The North. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard because the X-Men are such a family. You're like, well, you're the one who wouldn't beat me up, you know? For sure. The mutant. That's the mutant. That's the power of the allegory of. Right. It exactly. just automatically like, cuts those like corners and just goes straight to like oppression. You know? Right. Yeah. I wish Jamie was here because she'd have like a monologue right now in the most amazing way about post-second wave feminism and um, the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> but nobody corrected me, so I was like, oh, okay, well. Sounds, like, sounds good to me. I mean, I, I did think that there were aspects of like the divine feminine in the Dark Phoenix saga and all that stuff. And I mean, a woman becomes the most powerful thing in the universe chris claremont said there's god there's the phoenix sure 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 kali or something you know like the destroyer and rebirther of the universe right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like it 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 is through her i almost said a really wow i almost said like an old pagan adage which is like through her all things proceed and all things must return Mm. Well, whatever, you know, that's the idea. That's the, like, that's the, like, a lot of the cosmic stuff always has to have, like, a kind of, like, a play upon mythological and, like, divine stories, you know, like. But does that make Jean the interesting character, or does it make the Dark Phoenix the interesting character? It makes or does it make the Dark Phoenix saga an interesting story? True. But, Kay, you know about that whole lamp thing? What's that whole lamp thing um, Gail Simone said? Oh, the Gail Simone, uh, women as lampshades. Uh, yeah. Uh, I forgot the. It's like you, it was you Kelly Sue DeConnick. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, are we talking about the sexy lamp test? Yes, yes the sexy yes. lamp. Okay, test. yeah. So if you can replace any female character in a story with a sexy lamp, then you're a hack. So huh. wow. can you or that it's King just Gray, that, that character doesn't mean anything. Lamp? It's yeah. just a female place. It can be replaced with a sexy lamp, and the story and the story still works. That's the important part. The story still works. And you replace your female character with a sexy lamp, then your story sucks. Okay, so can we do that in Dark Phoenix Saga, and will the story still work? No one says no. No way. No, it wouldn't be able to work, because it's about her. (laughs) Sexy lamp destroys New York. Evil oppressed group uses sexy (laughs) lamp as, like, counterexample of oppressed group to, like, make the government crack down on oppressed group. I would be interested to see if we could use a sexy lamp test with just Jean Grey as Jean Grey as herself. And then the Dark Phoenix Saga is somebody else. Because I think that it still wouldn't pass, but it would be interesting just to see, like, when the interesting things happen. I think in, in Grant Morrison's run, you could not. She, uh, the sexy lamp tests. No, she, yeah, that's true. You couldn't, because she's pretty prominent in that. She actually kicks ass. She does, physically, which I kind of like. Sexy lamp's ex-boyfriend has sex on grave of sexy lamp. Yeah, that's the whole other thing. Like, whoa, whoa. When I read that, I read I read that part twice because I thought I was wrong. I was like, oh, dude, we always later? talk about this scene like in every X Men podcast. No, yeah, because we- you can't do that. It's just wrong. <laughs> and his justifications for it, he's like, she's dead. Doesn't she already know? It's like, no, she's dead. She doesn't know anything. <laughs> and I'm like, you just desecrated. You just you just insult everyone else who likes her. It's not desecrating it. It's wh- where there's an end, there's a new beginning. <laughs> Yeah, literally. <laughs> and people are like, oh, but Jean did that from like the egg world or whatever in the future. <laughs> no, she didn't. What if she's like, oh, I wanted you guys to get together, not at my funeral, and I didn't mean for you to f on my f- <laughs> gravestone. Like, that is so wrong. 
They're just impatient. It just reinforces the idea that Emma wants to be Jean. That's so, so true. I just wanted to do it at her grave. She's like, Emma has, she's like, Jean has to be a part of it. Okay, you're just fucking hitting me in the face with all this truth. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle it. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a lot of truth for me. If we're going to keep telling the truth like this, I'm going to sleep. <laughs> Alex Jones over here just telling the truth up and down. <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> all right, yeah. Okay, yeah. on topic. Okay. Um, all right, favorite kick-ass Jean Grey moment. I'll go first. She kills herself. Sacrifices <laughs> herself so that humanity could live. She chose to die a woman instead of a goddess, instead of live as a goddess. I think End my favorite podcast. part was in the Grant Morrison run when she did like the press release, like not the press release, the press conference thing with like. Oh, that was good too. Yeah, she was like, she kicked ass. I was like, damn girl, okay. Oh, shit, the fight with the human too, where she makes them puke up their own shit. Yes, yes, and makes yes. you swallow it. She was yeah, like, she's like, I'm bringing up your lunches and then I'm sending them down. I was like, damn. Yeah, yeah. One guy in that was probably like, awesome. I was hungry, um, but the rest <laughs> of them were probably like, ew. Who else has a favorite? Nolan and Shanae and Cat. I know you guys have Cat. Go. Okay, so I don't know if this really counts because it's not a Jean Grey moment. It's sort of just a moment that Jean Grey is in. But the first time I read this years and years and years ago, it really stuck with me and it still has. And I just have to mention it. It's in the Dark Phoenix saga in the uh, issue when they go to find Dazzler. And it's just a panel with Jean Grey in it. But the narration says something along the lines of, like, this is Jean Grey. She's less than a quarter century old. She's already yes. been in love, died, resurrected herself. And she knows she possessed the power of a god. And I read that and I was like, damn, what have I done with my life? <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm very much with you on that. I also have to say, whoa, Dazzler, period, the end. Uh, another of my, le I'd say my least favorite kick-ass Jean Grey moment is when we read for Marius's ethics podcast, um, a dog was um, dying and Jean Grey was like telepathically connected to the dog. And as the dog is like dying and finally dies, like in front of her, she like made the whole thing about her. She's like, oh, I can feel it. I'm dying now too. And I was like, the dog is dying for real and everyone's worried about you like you can't even let the fucking dog die like you have to fucking insert yourself into that like no one asked you like Eugene. i know and she's like i can't stop i'm so connected to the dog i'm like you're the phoenix you can't stop being psychically connected to, to a fucking, like dog in the street like i just can't i just don't believe isn't that, that her like origin story her like traumatic yes, but, moment was like her best friend get yeah, dying it, it, yes and, like, Andy they, richards when she was six years old but it's yeah, time yeah. to it's she's like 50 years old now like but i mean come on like that is way i was like that was the most self-centered thing i've probably ever seen <laughs> uh, okay my last thing i'm going to say about jean gray other than the fact that she made the whole dog thing about herself which was actually the more i think about it the more troublesome it is to me because it was just like you know, that didn't have to be about you it was about the dog like how would you like it if i just like shot one of you and i'm like oh my god i'm so traumatized from shooting you <laughs> Like a super villain. You're saying like the, it's like so, huh? Oh my god, I'm bleeding out too. Yeah, I'd be like, oh my god, the gun like thought there was like pullback on the gun and I hurt my <laughs> finger. You know, like oh my god, I ah ow. <laughs> I don't know why I said I. I just became more Puerto Rican than I ever was. Um, all right, cool. <laughs> moving on to um, moving on to the HBIC Emma Frost, who for some reason has a black outfit now and looks like Reagan Wingard. 
Um, and I don't like it. The black. Does she look like magic now? Then she probably looks like magic. She looks like magic, but you can tell because magic has more Eastern European hair. Um, but she looks like Reagan Wingard in like X Men Two Hundred. All right, okay. So why why Emma Frost? Why did I choose Emma Frost? Well, for obvious, I'm sure many other listeners are probably sick of hearing me tell this story, but um, getting back into comics and X-Men in general, uh, Justin showed me Emma Frost's origin story, and I just fell in love with her from then. And I think that pretty much since then, anything I've read of her because it was built on like my understanding of what her past life was like. I just love how she's developed and what kind of personality and what kind of character she is and has become. And she's just my badass. Bitch. I agree. No one laughed. I agree. Why is Emma Frost significant to the narrative of the X-Men story? Cause she teaches people how to be a badass. Bitch. Amen. <laughs> And platform boots. I would also say that her arc from villain to antihero is really very organic and very believable. I would agree. Um, uh, among other reasons, for the reason that this is one of the like unique aspects of X Men as a superhero franchise that like the villains like weave in and out of hero status, and like there's a kind of like a commonality of purpose to the villains and heroes as mutants. Going off of that, I think a lot of the times with Emma Frost, the big question that gets raised with her is. Is her character design sexist? Is she just drawn for the male gaze? Or is she written as a character who is confident enough in what she looks like that she can wear what she wants and she knows she looks hot? You know, I can, we can, Kay and I can answer that based on our, on our Emma Frost podcast because we decided after going through the whole Susan Batson truth thing with her, which I guess we can start to get into, that Emma's public persona was that she presents as sort of hypersexual, right? And presents as sort of like this, yeah, packaged for the male gaze is, is a perfect way to put it. Laura Mulvey coined that term, believe it or not. But I think Emma has such a need to be taken three dimensionally. And her tragic flaw is that she, She's so afraid of being vulnerable, that fear goes into her presenting hypersexually, and then people don't really get to see the real her, who is this three-dimensional person. I think that when you look at what happened to her in the 90s, I know we didn't read this, when, when the Hellions died, um, and, and that was when she had the transition from being headmistress of the Massachusetts Academy to joining Xavier and running Generation X, she was traumatized by their deaths, and... Um, even in Genosha, yeah, like yeah. even that scene where she's like coming up with a teenage um, Negasonic war Warhead. Wait, yeah. I, yes, I don't know her name. I'm so terrible. But like she comes out with her body and like this is when her second mutation kicks in. And like it's so sad because like three panels in like the paramedics or whatever, are like this kid has been dead for like hours and she's just like, save her, save her. And like... She cares. Like, she, she does questionable things as a teacher, but she cares. She cares a lot about what happens to her students. Yeah, and even in um, Astonishing X-Men, they come out and say that she's struggling with all this unbearable survivor's guilt from that experience. Yes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a really excellent point. Yeah, I, I think, though, that maybe some writers 
miss don't understand her and they do present her as like this and that they do write her to be packaged for the male gaze but i think the writers who do understand her understand that she's emerging from that and uh that's just an aspect of her personality well it's literal it's like literal padding do you know what i mean like it's um armor she has like plastic surgery like that's for sure like she has plastic surgery which is Weird because with her, she could alter people's gaze very easily with the amount of power that she Except has. She can't alter her. So why would she? Yeah. So why would she get plastic surgery? Like that's such a like a very inherent insecurity for her from when she was little. And that's if that so makes smart. her, you know, like it's just one of those things where it's like literal and metaphoric padding because she's like, well, let me just convey what I think people want, and then. If people want to get to know me better, then that's after you get through the diamond skin. Oh, I love that too. Yeah. And please go back and listen to the quotes we mentioned in the Gene Gray section because we were so excited to talk about them then. Yes. Um, but uh, Kat, I just think you brought up such a good point and I kind of want to talk about that. What is the answer to Kat's question? And Kat, what do you think is the answer to your question personally? Personally, I think that initially, uh, given the time that it was written and um, just over time, well, not necessarily, but I think in the time that she was written and throughout then, she has been kind of written and portrayed for the male gaze. But I think as comics have gotten more progressive and started to kind of, you know, depict women in more relatable in human ways she has been sort of I think I think writers are trying to reclaim that image for her and make her more kind of give her more agency and ownership over who she is and give her that really deep backstory and give her reasons for why she is the way she is and also she does despite her insecurities she does kind of use that persona of that confidence to give an answer of why she gives herself that image and that's so well said Okay, how about Emma and how she was as a villain in the Firestar miniseries? That actually messed me up a little bit. I actually really am curious to hear what Nolan thinks about how it left room for her to be redeemable as a villain. But because, like, for me, I had the opposite reaction where I was reading it and I was like, wow, like, this is pretty bad, Emma. I don't know if I could be okay with this. Because like butter rum. It reinforced the characteristics I do like about her, which is the fact that she's ruthless and she'll get any, she'll do like anything to get something done. She she came from money. She didn't have to work a day in her life, but she's a really hard worker, and she you can like see that. And like she gets done, but at the same time, like she does some really like very very questionable emotional and manipulative things that her mother didn't do. Maybe her dad did, but her mother didn't do that. And it was like this weird like maternal like manipulative like you're my puppet and that was what was kind of scary about it for me i mean whatever emma's own parents did to her is a late product of later writers That's you know true too, efforts. Yeah. uh so, so like at that time it was claremont who wrote that little miniseries right firestar no. no who was it i don't remember yeah well anyway it was it was written by a woman whoa wow well whoever they were whatever they were writing i feel that they were capturing something that is a very sensible attitude for people who are on the losing side of a kind of like a large structural competition. I think in a way, her behavior in Firestar strikes me more as more of a natural expression of the kind of like 
colonized world's willingness to engage in authoritarian politics to compete with like large, powerful neoliberal states that are neo-colonial as well. Like, for instance, like the kind of tendency of dictators. I guess I'm thinking of like Maoism, for instance. You know, like her like ruthlessness in Firestar is figured as this kind of like ruthless competitiveness in a sensibility of like we're going to lose if we're not like smart and like tough you know what i mean whereas in in dark phoenix saga i didn't get that impression i just felt like she was a cartoon villain in dark phoenix saga yeah no i agree i, I think to me in firestar she was more like uh it was like more it was definitely i don't want to say dumbed down but definitely for children or for younger of a younger audience but it was like that sort of political intrigue thing where she was against Celine, um, is, is kind of what I got from that. Really quick before we close this segment, is Butterum the original Harambe or the new Harambe? New Harambe and the original Harambe. <laughs> I'm thinking here of like uh, movies that really pluck at the heartstrings with animal deaths, you know, and like yeah. in in Dances with Wolves, not only does a horse die, but also the dog dies, and also there's a bunch of other. Sh- too you know like that's like really butter rum can't claim like a soul claim to all this you know that's not what <laughs> we're just saying if butter rum is the new or the original harambe harambe does not represent just sad animal deaths it's just harambe just like a popular meme is that what you mean i, I mean i didn't really have any i think you're no, thinking I... of it a little too clinically okay I love that you injected that type of intelligence into the question that I asked. I know, really. Hashtag like, comics it, first. It gave it depth. <laughs> Hashtag original Harambe. Kat, what do you think? Original Harambe or new Harambe or both? I don't think anybody can replace Harambe. I think it's beautiful. Shanae, how do you feel about Butter Rum the Horse? I believe that the gorilla will always be the original Harambe. That's like one of the low points of 2016. I think if you read um, Firestar after Harambe, Butter Rum is the new Harambe. I feel like nobody understands what happened with Harambe, but okay. I feel like no one understands what happened with with Butter Rum. (laughs) I understood what happened with Butter Rum. Poor Butter Rum. Emma killed Butter Rum. All right, so we said this before, but let's go through and say an Emma quote that we all like. I'm not too familiar with Emma Frost. Yeah, I don't know if I can say any more than, like, the 50 I said earlier. I choose the <laughs> same one I chose for Kitty Pride. You know, her, like, statements of, like, solidarity with Kitty when Kitty is about to... She's like, are you whatever, Miss Frost? And she's like, astonished, Miss Pride. I think just the same as with Kitty Pride, a great moment for her is when Kitty is clearly about to either... Well, is just as far as... Emma knows clearly about to just die pointlessly trapped inside the magic bullet. It is a magic bullet being shot from the break world to earth. And Emma offers to psychically anesthetize her and she refuses that. I think that's a real bonding moment between two people who had formerly been enemies for totally understandable good reasons. And so you have a good example of forgiveness in such a situation since they have good reasons, you know. So it's just a good moment. And then when, when Kitty sacrifices herself, it becomes even more like powerful. I have another Emma moment that is my Let's favorite. Hit us, Kay. It's like the, um, the no dialogue issue in um, the Oh, Grammy I love movie. that one. And it's when they like both dive in, like Gene and Emma both dive in psychically into Charles's mind to try to, uh, right? Yeah, Charles's. Yeah, to try to find Cassandra Nova. Yeah. 
And like that, just art wise, that issue is so cool, but it's also fun because like it's purely just image, right? Like just images telling the story. And I have two moments in that issue that I liked. Uh, before they go in, Jean's like ready to go or whatever. And Emma takes like a shot from her flask. <laughs> and then they both go in. And then there's a moment where Jean like falters and she looks back and is like, Emma, help. And Emma just like, like, she's just like, doesn't give a <laughs> she's Like, no, I'm good. But then she like fucks up because she gets attacked by something else or like get like gets it stuck in something. But I thought that was really funny because even like, it wasn't life or death necessarily, but it was just funny that even when Gina's like, Emma, help. Like, Emma's just like, no. That reminds me of another really awesome Emma moment when Banshee in Generation X, when Banshee comes complaining to her that he can't have dreams without her like sexually figuring in them. And she's just like, fuck you. I don't give a shit. You know, like that's a really great <laughs> scene. I thought that's so funny. <laughs> Why would he yeah. tell her that? That's awful. Well, it's like not just like, it's like actually like a psychic power thing. Was she, that's was she doing it to him on purpose? Uh, like she was doing it in her sleep without trying, oh. you know, to him in his sleep. And like, oh, weird. You know, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's funny though, because I could totally see her just being like, "I don't give a shit." Like she it's just something like that. that happens. What do you want me to do? Yeah, she does so much weird shit with her her powers. Like I have two moments that really come to mind. There's one in Astonishing X-Men where they're fighting somebody off and then Emma Frost just, the battle is already won. This was totally unnecessary, but she does something where she says like, oh, if you hear these three random words, you're just going to vomit for the next 48 hours. Like just kind of gives this weird. And Cyclops is like, "Mm, my girlfriend's really weird. And she does something similar in New X-Men when she and Jean Grey are confronting that mob in front of the school. Yes. Yeah. And and in the middle of the mob, or one of the reporters talking to Jean Grey, he's like, oh, Jean, you're so hot. And then they all pass out. And Jean's like, and she, and she was like, I just pressed their bliss centers. Like, yeah. it's fine. And they're going to be really ashamed when they wake up. It was great. She's so petty. She's my favorite. I love it. Hashtag petty. Mm-hmm. All day. Yeah. She has no, no shame. I, love her too. I also like when in Astonishing X Men when they're fighting danger and Colossus is like, Oh, you guys have to do stuff we wouldn't normally do. And then Emma like turns into diamond form for like a second and he just grabs her and throws her onto onto danger. And he's like, Oh, I get it. That's something I wouldn't normally have done before. <laughs> uh, it was just funny. You know, any, any final thoughts, Emma Frost? I think we're good. She's bae. She's bae. Salt bae. Salt bae. <laughs> Just because um, she, she likes to dish out salt. Like salty. Oh, I get it. Okay. That was a play on words. Yeah. It's also mm-hmm. a different meme entirely, but yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm really bad with getting memes. Getting all punny up in here. It's getting punny here. So pun off all your puns. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Okay, honorable mention time. Okay, we included X23, who's the current Love Wolverine. Her. Love her. Love her, too. Abdullah was reading that comic. Shouldn't he read the whole thing? Yes, he should, because X23 is freaking awesome. Did you hear what Kay said? Yeah. Because, like, in case anyone wanted a female Wolverine, they got it. But then, like, she also is so much more than that at the end of it. But the pitch would understandably be, do you want a female Wolverine? Okay, then read this. And then when you read it, you're like, wow, that actually is good because she has like a really interesting narrative. 
I love her. That comic, X-23, Innocence Lost. If it doesn't make you cry, as I always say, you're made of stone. It, like, really does pull at all the feels. It's like, come on, man. If you're a mother and you read that and you don't cry, I don't know if I want to trust your parenting skills. Yeah. It's just not okay. Um, Okay. Anyone else love X23 Wolverine? Anyone else want to say, hey, she's she's pretty hard to not like, honestly. She's a pretty stoic character. She's been so happy lately, though. I don't like her happy because she's dating young Warren. Well, she's Wolverine. She's technically Wolverine now, right? She's Wolverine, but she's also dating young Warren, who now has like fiery angel wings. Oh, oh, how'd that happen? Oh, yeah. ew. That's so then she's story. like a second <laughs> Betsy. I don't like that. Yeah, she's like, exactly. I don't but like they, that. they keep getting into fights because she keeps like almost killing herself. He's like, why do you do that? Oh mm. my God. And then she's like, whatever. Uh, yeah, I that's mean, well, so annoying. It is a little bit annoying. <laughs> but I do love her, so that's okay. Oh, hey, Magma. I love Magma. She's great. She's kicking I didn't powers. get to read a lot of Magma. Oh, New Mutants. Cool. Yeah. She's cool. She's from Nova Roma. She makes to magma. <laughs> Wasn't didn't didn't um Nolan mention that she he really liked magma in a different <laughs> podcast? Yeah, remember we recorded New Mutants twice, and I was like, okay, which New Mutant power would you want to have? And you said magma. I thought I said <laughs> Douglas Rams. No, that was in the second one when you were less drunk. Yeah. Magma's really powerful, you know. She is, <laughs> but it was I was it was we were just questioning the usefulness of it. It was because it was you know, so out of left field. She has like Aurora level powers, you know, but over the earth instead of the skies. Yeah, you know, no, it's awesome. true. I just like I would, I would love to have that power. I just don't know when I would use it. Be like, oh, I'm really pissed at you. Like, okay, I'm gonna like blow up New York. Like, it just seems a little bit overkill. <laughs> you know, but I get it. I mean, hey, I love her, so I get it. Okay. Power. Um, I put Jubilee on here because a lot of other people love her. I find her to be obnoxious, and I wish we could go back to the mall. I liked her better when she, I mean, I don't know. She's a vampire. Get your powers back. Get your powers back and don't be a vampire, and maybe I'll think Yeah, she, yeah, that was weird. That's a whole oh, weird thing. Jubilee, sorry. Oh, whatever. Um, it's cool. Dust, I love Dust from Young Dust X-Men. is amazing. She should be in every comic. She should. Comic. She's really cool. She is, for those of you who don't know Dust, she wears a burqa. She's from Afghanistan, and she has the power to turn into dust. Probably could have used a better code name, but dust works. I think that it's like that she's was a devout so Muslim. Like I read the that I loved when um when Logan first found her. That thought I thought that was really poignant. That was really cool. Yes, she's great. Um, anyone else like dust? Don't know dust. Okay, don't know dust. Okay, cool. Um, I put Psylocke on here because people like Psylocke. Psylocke is a badass. I give her that. But that's the thing. Like, if it's just, if it was, see, like, now it's all, it's messing me up that, like, X23 is with young Warren because it's like, oh, so you have a type, Warren. Like, that's annoying. Like, I don't like that. Why? Why why is Psylocke and what's, like, Psylocke and Betsy like? Oh, like, like the whole assassin thing? Martial Like the whole assassin. Well, they're both, like, half Asian, I think. Are they? X23 isn't half Asian. Is she not? No, she's half Wolverine. Oh, she has like green. Okay, yeah, that's true. But I thought, oh no, like no, 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 no. No, Betsy's half Asian. But they both have dark hair. Betsy's they not. Both hair. And they're both assassins. Asian, but she was like they both planted. Have baggage. Her mind was planted in the body of a. No, right, no one remembers the truth. Here's what happens. Here is why Psylocke looks like that. I'm gonna take you back. Was, All right. Picture it. 1992. <laughs> yeah. Japanese are buying up property all over the United States, and American <laughs> businessmen are scared. 
The novel Rising Sun sells really well by Picture Michael it. Crichton. It's the Bush. It's the first Bush administration. Yeah. You know we're winning <laughs> wars. Bush administration. We have the uh, we have the moral superiority going on. And then what happens? I already forgot what we're talking about. What are we talking about? What's up with Bessie? Is she British or oh, Japanese? Betsy. Which is wait, it? Wait, no, she's okay. She's a British model, uh-huh. MI6 agent, uh-huh. all at the same time, and mutant. And um, her brother is also Captain Britain, and her other brother is some other guy who's older and weird. So, who figures prominently in He's Uncanny like X-Force. That's awesome. Everyone should read it. Right. right, yeah. So basically what happened is at some point after the Siege Perilous... Psylocke, there was a woman named Revanche who was like the as an assassin girlfriend to somebody who mattered, like the samurai guy, I think. So Silver he, Samurai? Sil- Silver Samurai? I think so. Yeah. yeah, or someone similar. Okay. Someone in a samurai costume. Okay. So he or maybe yeah. So something happened where they they became half of each other. So half of her personality got mixed with Revanche or Revanche. Yeah, Um, also known as Quanin and everything. So she's like half Asian through like magical shit. So half their half their body and mind merged. So she's not even really half Asian. Yeah. And you won't find that anywhere in the wikis, ladies and gentlemen. Really? Because no one will go through how complicated that was. Because at the time I was like, what the fuck? And then I my mom was like, Don't curse and she beat (laughs) out of me. Just kidding. (laughs) But um, but in my mind, I really was like that because I was like, I don't get it. And then because in X Men issue like four, they're all at the beach. X Men like adjectivist X Men. Jim Lee's drawing. They're all at the beach, and Psylocke comes out of the water, and Jean Grey catches Cyclops like getting all turned on, mm-hmm. and then like you know like telekinetically puts his penis down, or something. like literally. Um, <laughs> well, in like, a bathing so. suit, it can be a little bit you know obvious. Like I mean, she was like Scott, no. Yeah. So um, it was crazy. Sh- <laughs> um, so anyway, so that's the true story about Psylocke. No one will ever tell you that. It's really complicated. But now we're pretending she's fully Asian. We're like just like retconning that's all that how it's Okay. Yeah, and now it's Secret Wars. So you can say whatever the. She's really a squirrel about. all along. She was really. She's yeah. <laughs> squirrel. Like her and Squirrel Girl are really are. Like, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel girl. Squirrel, squirrel, squirrel girl. I'm so confused. Okay, Husk is on my list. Let me tell you why Husk, Husk is, is cool. on my list. Generation Husk X. is so cool. Wait, she is also, she the one who like? Oh my God, the the Sugar Man or whatever the hell his name is. She uh, Sugar Man is from Age of Apocalypse universe. Yeah, so Husk is in that universe too. Yes. Oh my God, that story broke my heart. Okay. Oh, I forgot about that one. That's when yes. I that's when I first heard about Husk. That's AOA Husk. I know Husk from She Lies with Angels and. Uh, <laughs> let's not let's not talk about that. No, that's because. Though, I like Husk because she had the balls to have sex with Warren. Warren really gets around lately. Have sex with Warren, Archangel, in the sky while her mother oh, was yeah, watching. <laughs> All right, but that's a bad. It's a bad comic anyway, you know. So like, that's fine. But <laughs> and she's also in a wonderful leader of Generation X. Yeah, she's a good leader. That's true. She's kind of more interesting than her brother in a way. Yeah, I, well, I like them both, but I like her. Yeah, she's she's more of a badass. All right, no one else cares about these characters except me, obviously. Polaris, anyone care? I care. She's like a more self-aware Jean Grey. She's, I love Polaris, actually. I think that she did great. And like in the wake of Genosha's destruction, that was so sad and beautiful. Yeah, I agree. I love her. She also has love good her. taste in Summers Brothers. Yeah, she he is the best the, looking she of she the three. She likes the, the rebellious one, you know. No, she likes the non Well, the rebellious one is Vulcan. She likes Havoc. Yeah. yeah. He's non-rebellious. Havoc's real rebellious. 
Why? Why? Scott is the straight laced one. How is Havoc rebellious? Because he left the X Men to become a Havoc geologist. Havoc is just like a uh, uh, <laughs> Havoc is just like a f- you know. He's like a loose cannon, you know. He can be that geologist. Yeah, I mean, you know how geolo- you know, geology is a tough <laughs> industry, Nolan. Oil, Nolan, oil. I, yeah, I, I guess. I, I mean, I can't really answer that because I think Vulcan is the. He doesn't the count. Three. He's the retcon one. That's okay, his yes, personality I trait. Okay, I mean, Havoc is the better looking one. And the more interesting one. Probably. If yes. I was gonna procreate with Cyclops or Havoc, I would procreate with Havoc. Yeah, me too. Mm. I mean, yeah. Havoc is like Havoc is the kind of guy a guy would sleep with. <laughs> Amen. Okay. Uh, I put a fire star on here. I just like her. She's great. She was recently in Amazing X-Men. I wasn't a cute well, whatever. She's alright. I think I'm just like what is it called? Like aestheticist, aestheticist? Like I just think still I like redheads. Like redheads on purpose. Yeah. I no, I get you. I get you. Okay, what about Blink? She was kind of like a breakout star when she died in X-Men the Phalanx Covenant and then when they brought her back in AOA. She's also all up in exiles. Yeah, so now she's just running around like a crazy little blue chick. You like Blink, right? From AOA K? Yeah, I do. I liked her. That's <laughs> I clearly only picked characters I liked for the honorable mention because no one had like anything. It, it's like, interesting okay, that it's interesting that in AOA they make her the like adolescent girl who is the Wolverine sidekick, but that Wolverine is Sabretooth instead. You know, that's a yes. good like dynamic. That you is. know, that's a good choice. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, no, I did like that relationship. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yes. All right. So moving on to actual questions, which I will not answer. Why is it important that we do? Are, are podcasts like these important? Is it important to have discussions like this? Is it important to have discussions like this on a podcast? Period. Just ever? Yes, of course. It's. I mean, any conversation is important to have because we're humans and we need to communicate with each other despite how much my anxiety and my depression tells me not to, <laughs> but it's necessary for you to live and be a person. Right. And Let that, me ask so the recording question it on a podcast way. sometimes is validating for other people too. That's all. <laughs> Why is it important <laughs> to celebrate female characters in discussion? Because women should be celebrated. And not only that, but discussing female characters helps us better perceive them as a reader. And if you're a creative, it helps you better flush them out as a writer. Freaking thank you, Sinead, for giving an answer that is not silly. I wasn't I being silly. Wasn't silly either. No, I was referring to myself earlier because oh. I was just talking. I was just like riffing before. I liked your answer too, Sinead. Um, Kat, do you have anything to tell? You look like you're going to laugh. Okay, now you don't. What? You looked like you were going to laugh. No, I'm good. Um, No, to contribute to that, I think it's important to celebrate female characters. Uh, The same reason it is to celebrate any character who isn't often represented in any sort of media. Um, Normally with superhero comics, definitely early on, you've got a lot of cis white male heroes. And lately there is a lot of diversification in that. So I think it's very important to celebrate these characters so people can see that they are represented in comic books and in media. And these are really wonderful characters and they should be celebrated. I love it. Beautiful. Nolan, the anarchist who has a friend who's a manist, go. I do have one friend who's a manist. That's true. Yeah. Um, old friend. Look at Cat's was- face is shocked. <laughs> what? Cat's face is shocked. No, because can we tell the story really quick about how was it the New Mutants podcast when you're like I would recommend this comic to anyone who's a manist, and then Gabby was like thought it was really funny. We all know what a manist is, though, right? It's I didn't a, know until a, that moment. A manist, yes, it's, it's a, like a, a guy yeah. who feels like men are oppressed. 
Well, now at that time, we wouldn't have used the term alt right, would we have? Even just when we were shooting that podcast, we wouldn't have used that term alt right for menonists. But now, like I think, a oh. men's rights no, activist, a men's, a men's rights, rights activist. Yeah, yeah. No. but now I think clearly, like, if there's one minority that has been oppressed since the beginning of time, yeah. it's white men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so white I, men have it hard right now. <laughs> I don't remember which which comic it was that I would have recommended to him, but I did do it, I think. I think and it was also, like New Mutants or something. Well, yeah, yeah, I did. He, yeah. The recommendation of to read uh, Rick Remender's Deadpool in Uncanny X-Force probably worked better, I think, because he likes yeah, okay, Deadpool. See, yes. What do I think of it as an anarchist? I think as someone, uh, the same person I was talking about Naomi Klein with last night asked me, they asked me about this podcast, and I said, like, well, you know, like, if you're going to be a commentator on comics today, what are you going to do? You're either going to advocate for more inclusivity in comics or you're going to be taking an explicitly alt-right stance. There's only those two choices, really, you know, like, or you're going to be an established, like, neutral medium that has already existed and is not, like, taking a side between those two, you know? And so, like, I'm proud to be advocating for the former that's why it's important to talk about women in in comics love it hey is there a through line between all of these characters is there something similar about all of them that made us want to choose them or in my case made me want to choose Jean Grey um I think that what they all have in common is that they do often have relationships with other characters, most often male characters, but more often than not, they exist beyond those relationships. Like for most of these characters, I can see who they are beyond Kitty Pride and Colossus and beyond Rogue and Gambit. I can see them for who they are outside of those relationships. I love that. I think it's important because women perform many different roles in life and you can kind of see that being um, represented either simultaneously or separately in different characters, um, especially female characters we were talking about just now. Because like, not to say that the only identity a woman can have is a maternal or sisterly or um, lover or anything, but you know, those all come into play as well as adds to their personality or what kind of person they are. So I think seeing multiple you know, just like representations of that is always really important. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to open up this question to the ladies first. As women, where do you want to see female characters go in the future of comics? And um, how do you want to see them interpreted by their creators a little bit differently? Or, or do you not want to? Do you think it's going well? And this includes all characters, not just the ones we talked about. I mean, it's happening, but I would love to just see more women writers and women artists creating characters. Uh, I think um, it's already going incredibly well. There are numerous uh, female-led titles in Marvel and DC, as well as um, indie comics. Um, But yeah, definitely more representation in who's creating those comics, more women writers and artists, more women of color, more LGBTQ women, just to represent this whole array of women that can be in comic books. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I would definitely like it to reach a point. um, I don't know how to best phrase it. I want women in comics and comics about women to reach a point where it's no longer a minority or such a niche that these type of discussions have to come as a shock to the audience or like something that people would have to look for and search. What I mean is I wanted to be able to have 
female characters reach the same level as their male counterparts, where they finally get that equal level of respect and admiration. Not that this is bad. I'm just saying that like when it can reach a point where I could talk about Jean Grey as much as Wolverine, and then the fact that she's female is no longer the number one defining difference between them both, other than her powers. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense to anyone. Definitely. I definitely agree with that. And I think uh, what is definitely moving that in, in that direction, um, in terms of X-Men, for example, you know, now X-23 is Wolverine and they're not calling her, oh, Lady Wolverine. It's her name is Wolverine. And if you right. go beyond X-Men, She-Hulk is now just called Hulk. And then and Jane Thor. Foster is now Thor. And Riri Williams is now, well, she's Ironheart, but still. And yeah, the, the whole point should be to make this the norm. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be kind of amazing to say, oh, look at all these female characters we have. It should say this, these are this is a normal thing that you should see in comic books. I mean, just to add to that too, like I not to say that I'm disappointed in the fact that these characters are becoming female or like the female characters are adapting these roles that we've known for a really long time. But I would like to see like original characters too just being here I am. Like, it's not like right. it not to be pitched as like, oh, look at this cute girl thing who's, you know, like, it, so it doesn't feel like a pitch. So if it's just like a character who's like, hi, like, I'm here. Right. It's so like, so instead yeah. of taking on male roles, they establish their own roles. And yeah, like they just are there. Those roles were. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ladies think that each of the characters we talked about today with the exception of the honorable mentions, because I was the only one who chose them, do they all stand up as feminist role models? Do they even need to? I don't think they all need to, because in the world, not everyone's a feminist either. What about in a comic that's about minorities? I think that even if it's a comic about minorities, it's almost especially important to have at least, or no, not not necessary, but it would be interesting just as a story to have not every woman be necessarily feminist in either creation or personality or how they're functioning in the story because you need dimensions in a story. That's interesting. I wouldn't want it all to be uniform, but I do think that we have to reach a certain point of understanding with feminism before we can actually do that. Or I don't know. It depends on who you're pitching it to, I guess, but... To me, I don't think it's necessary for all the characters to be feminist, but I do think that depending on what kind of character you're building, you have a responsibility to understand what sway that character is going to have to a certain group of people. And I agree with that 100%. They don't all have to be feminist characters and not even the same level of feminism if they are going to be feminist characters. They just have to be diverse because at the end of the day, women are people and people are different. There's more than one ways to be a girl. (laughs) And by that definition, more than one ways to be a person. Sinead, you're killing it with uh, the freaking sound bites. I can make a t-shirt out of everything you said today. Thank you. I, I can't speak like that, so I really admire that. Um, Kat, how about you? Um, yeah, I, I agree with that, too. They don't necessarily have to be portrayed with that image in mind. But I think that the way all of these characters are, I think any feminist who's looking for a feminist role model can take any of these characters and interpret them that way because they're all just so well-rounded, three-dimensional people. Love it. Um, all right. Any comics from this whole run that you'd recommend? I would very strongly uh, recommend Get Mystique, not 
solely for mystique dynamics, but also as a kind of commentary on the Iraq war, you know, on like U.S. colonialism in the late aughts, uh, like in recent years. Like it's a real interesting setting that they're like dealing with in the present years. Like, yeah. Uh, Kay, you said Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Yes. Okay. Kat, anything? Yes, I would recommend um, three recommendations. Um, Astonishing X-Men. I also would recommend Wolverine Get Mystique and God Loves Man Kills, one of my absolute favorite X-Men stories. I, I would also just say that issue of the uncanny with Rogue and the whole Ms. Ms. Marvel thing. That really uh, tugs at the heartstrings for me. And please read X-23, Innocence Lost, and show me that you have a heart audience. All right, so that does it for the 87th episode of the Comics First Podcast. Again, I'd love to thank my panelists, Shanae, uh, Kay, Kat, Nolan, and Marius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Abdullah, uh, thank you so much for staying and helping with video. Uh, Demetrius, thank you so much for editing this. Sh- Have a great night, everybody. Bye. 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 Thanks. <laughs>